Sally, I hear something. Stop! Texas Chainsaw Massacre, from New Line Cinema, rated R, no one under 17 admitted without parent or guardian. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Orion Pictures presents Gene Wilder. Holy baloney, here we go again. Gilda Ratner. And Dom DeLuise in his most demanding role. One of you is a werewolf. You'd think this would frighten me. Haunted honeymoon. Rated PG. Starts Friday, July 25th at a theater near you. Check your newspaper for times. Push it real good, real good. That was the biggest song of the whenever that came out. Baby, I miss those old salt and pepper videos. Salt and pepper. Always felt I always felt bad that Spinderella didn't get more recognition. Because there's always three yeah. of them, and you're like, who the hell's the other lady? It's left eye. And that was Spinderella. Died. It was Salt Pepper. Yeah. <laughs> it was Salt Pepper and Spinderella. Who's, what's, what's the other one? Who's left eye? That, was, was, a the, diff- um, that was a different group. That's, um, well, that's when she died, I think, left eye. I thought that was Salt. No, I guess it wasn't Salt and Pepper. Don't go changing waterfalls. Who's that? That's, that's that group. Yeah. Da, 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 da. I don't have my phone. I can't. I can't look up who that is. That's um. Ah, oh, for fuck's sake! And we can't get the uh, interns on it because they're quarantined. Oh God! Well, it's one of those things where it's like you know we we'll know that when we stop recording and then we don't <laughs> record. Then we look like uh, it's um. Is that like TLC or something like that's that? That's it. TLC. There you go. See. You just put your mind. It was TLC, and that was Left Eye, and the other ones, and yeah, that's when Butzerface had a career too. Um, doing all that. That's the yeah, Paul Abdul. But then you also Queen Latifah was being all tough. You know, let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. That weird. That's like all now. That's oldies. <laughs> it's gold. The golden oldies on the <laughs> those are the old oldies. You know, <laughs> I, I it's just, it's just all that old. <laughs> it's so weird. I was, there's an, yeah, there's an oldies channel, and I click it, and it's just 60s. It's 60s like um, like Beatles and, you know, that, that kind of 60s era music. That's the oldies now. It's like, that's not the oldies. That's like classic rock or not even classic rock. It's formative rock. Anyway. But anyway. <laughs> so I. <laughs> so. Uh, we digress. Yeah. Sorry. Welcome to an all-new, exciting edition of the Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, this podcast. My name is Jay Blake, and, and uh, with me, as always, is Dion to the Baya, Dion Baya, if you're not paying attention. Um, and and we're, we're back for, for a regular installment in our 2020 um, 
series. It's a very uh, limited edition series. And we're doing uh, tonight uh, an oldie but a goodie from back in the year of 1991. 1991, let me see. Which we were kind of just reflecting about just a minute ago. Um, We're doing nothing but trouble. Nothing but trouble. I always have LinkedIn. What year was... We should have worked this out before. Because in my head, this is linked to Ghostbusters 2. That's 89. 89 is Ghostbusters 2? That late? Yeah, that might be the same summer as as Batman. That might be the movie we always forget that came out the summer of Batman. Uh, I had the Mad Magazine article or issue for Ghostbusters 2. And I don't think I saw Ghostbusters 2 in the theater. This is hard because, see, for this, for me, I was in uh, elementary school or primary school till sixth grade, and then I she went was, to middle school. Was 18. <laughs> was, until I was 18 until <laughs> about two years ago. And then I went to middle school in seventh grade, and I had middle school for seventh and eighth grade, then I had high school for 12, uh, 9 through 12. You, didn't you do in Shenandoah? Didn't you do like sixth grade, seventh grade, and then that was your high school? Seventh, seventh you were already in well, the same Well, no, building? it was seventh, eighth, and ninth were in one school. Ah. So that was, so like our freshman year was, you were still in technically the like the middle school. Middle school. Okay. Because um, I know some people will go and they'll have the same, you know, be everything once you leave elementary school. But so seventh and eighth for me was, you know, Hamden Middle School, it was its own school before I went to high school. And that, for me, was the fall of 1990. No, 1991 was... Uh, 91 to 92 was the se- seventh grade. So I remember that was such a huge, huge... You're leaving your elementary school. And I don't think I thought anything of it until my two other friends, Martin and Chris, started really freaking out about it. And they're like, oh, my God, this is going to be crazy. We're going to a whole different school, all these different other people. And I was like, oh, yeah, that is a pretty big... Cra- <laughs> it is crazy. It's almost like... <laughs> you're you know, right. Suddenly you're... Yeah, so the night before, you are shitting a brick, and you go, and everything's fine. But I remember, you know, you go to middle school, and it was just such a whole other world you're introduced to. And that's really when I started, like, you know, hearing, uh, I guess I, I stopped listening so much to, like, hair metal and Aerosmith and, you know, classic rock. And I started listening to other stuff because there were so many other people that I was now, you know, hanging out with in classrooms from all over the, the whole town. You know, so we had a big town, suburb. So this is... My memory, even though I I saw Nothing But Trouble in the theater, which means I had to have seen it when I was still in sixth grade, the winter of 91 into the spring. But then I have a memory of Nothing But Trouble being while I was in middle school in seventh grade because the Digital Underground song was so big at the time. Uh, Same old song that like I equate that with the uh, other movie, that song for Posse. It's the Posse. Shoot them up. Shoot them up. That that uh, silly Western from that era. Um, Mario Van Peebles. Uh, yeah, that movie. Yeah. And what's the other? The da, 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 da. Uh, oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. How's that? Tick tock. You don't stop. No. Uh, uh, oh, how does that song go? With the with the girl and the saxophone out in the water. <laughs> anyway, there's so much of like this early, early, early like. It's not gangster rap, but it's like hip hop kind of like these songs of like also like oh you know you OPP. By uh, you know, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, that all that is linked to me for this for this era, and uh, I've always associated nothing with trouble with the digital underground. And then I saw the the I saw this in the theater, and I don't know if 
I had to have seen it since, but I don't, I don't, I can't tell you when the last time I had a beginning to end viewing of this movie. So maybe when it came out on video, I watched it like when it came out on the old Tommy K's video. Um, but it, this has literally been a 25 year. I mean, we're showing our age here Yeah, yeah. Know, of last time I, I viewed this movie. Uh, I mean, this is so much pre-prep where it was like, Jesus. 10 or 15 years ago, I saw this thing like on a used DVD cart. And I was like, oh, wow. I, I grabbed it thinking, you know, this is a really, you know, I have a friend of mine that I work with that really loves this movie. So for years, he'd always talk about how he, no, nothing but trouble. Such a great. And I'd be like, you know, isn't that people don't like that now? Isn't that considered like a really bad movie? <laughs> and he's like, this is, it's like, it's the best movie. So talking to him, and I was like, yeah, you know, it probably is a really good movie. And then I knew there was this cult following for it. So many years ago, I bought the DVD of this movie and it just sat there on the shelf. And it's the Warner Brothers one, the one where it's like when DVDs were brand new, where it's the cardboard, you'd open yeah. it up and then like, Inside on the binder, it has the proof proof of purchases. You know, just in case you want to send them the random people, like I'm going to send it to you, or my mom, yeah, the yeah. proof of purchase. There's enough there, you know. And the, uh, the you put it in, and all it is just jump to a scene or just hit play with the Warner Brothers <laughs> special features. Yeah, interactive jump to menu. a scene <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, see stills of other posters of movies we have available. <laughs> you know, you can't click on them. Like, oh, I thought you could. Can I at least watch the trailer? Doesn't even have so, like the written bios on it. No, it doesn't have anything. You know, like that. It just, or, or it does. It only has one person. It's Dan Aykroyd. You can't even. No, it doesn't. But you know, so uh, I've been having this has been in my library for years to watch, and just it waiting. wasn't until yeah, just sitting there, you know, just calling, just me, waiting you know. for this day. This day, yes, I knew <laughs> this day would come, and it's finally come upon us. The Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers Studio. I'm just going like this every time. I did uh, not. So this was. I did not see this in the theater, but wow. I probably rented it when it was a new release. So maybe ninety two, ninety one, ninety two. Yeah, seventh grade for you as well. <laughs> and that's the li- and that's the last time I saw it. So this is now nearly th- almost 30 years since I've seen Isn't this Isn't that movie. crazy to think that? <laughs> <laughs> I called my dad up before we watched the movie, and I, I was talking to him about it because I was like, do you remember when me, you, and Martin went to see that? He was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And, like, you know, technically this movie flopped, but it wasn't beto- because of me, my dad, or Martin. We, we went and we were paid, you know, we paid and saw it. I don't know if I saw it opening weekend. I would have but, loved um, to have talked to your dad about what he thought of this movie, like... The, the as he walks out the theater. <laughs> oh, I just well that was back then where you you, you well no I think we enjoyed movies like this. They these didn't need to make sense. These were just ah oh, that was just a crazy movie and that was the end of it. You're not sitting there like, you know, hmm. Like my dad, I I always remember him growing up telling me a story where he had a similar experience where him and his friends were driving down to. And this is so I called him today and I asked him about this. And I was like, do you remember that story you told me? And he's like, yeah. And he explained more of it. It's like he, he had an experience where he was driving down to maybe Florida. He was driving down in, in the south and um, probably on his way from the northeast down to Florida. And the interstate wasn't done yet. So it was one of these things where you have to get off the interstate and get on like whatever that route, whatever it is, and then get catch the interstate when it's built again. So he said the this was like a common way for these speed traps in these like smaller parishes or towns. They get off and then you'd still be going as pretty as fast as you were on these routes as you were on the highway. And you go through these like one horse towns and, uh, or one street towns. And he got pulled over by some cop in like a 50, you know, Chevy. 
and they were like, you know, with the big like, you know, party hat on top, the little ball, and then the guy wasn't going to let him leave until they get, so they had to pay him there, whatever they had in their wallets, and the guy let him go. And uh, I remember that after this, um, the summer from middle school into freshman year, my parents we went on a trip to New Ham. We went from Connecticut north to New Hampshire to go check the Budweiser factory out. And then from there, we took a left and we went through Vermont to into New York State to get to Lake George. So we spent a night in Vermont at like a one of those ski lodges or ski cabins that was off uh, season. So it was a really nice place, had a kitchen in it and all that, you know. But this it was usually where people would stay to go skiing. And on that journey, the, the, those two days, we went through a lot of these crazy towns where it was like it reminded me back then of Nothing But Trouble, where it's like it's just this one street town and it's just like you know this is the courthouse this is also the sheriff's office this is also the state department of records and all that kind of a thing so uh i i find this was very something i think uh you know my dad really liked when he saw it (laughs) (laughs) yeah well for anybody that hasn't seen it i mean there's a lot of uh, obviously cast and crew we can get into but in a nutshell it's about these uh it's wealthy guy and and the, his two friends and Demi Moore Chevy Chase plays a wealthy guy and they're trying to get to Atlantic City and they take a detour off of the highway because for they, whatever they, they reason they live in New York City and they and they're leaving the city to go south to Atlantic City through Jersey and they basically end up getting pulled over and then in this crazy tiny little town as Dion was kind of indicating and I never really thought about it until. Uh, we watched this movie and doing a little bit of research that there, this is like a subgenre of kind of horror, you know, because uh, Psycho, you know, you mm-hmm. get Janet Lee's character kind of gets off and she gets off up, the interstate. Yeah. Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is like a group of people that kind of gets get off, the, know, interstate. off the beaten <laughs> track, you know, and yeah, vacancy. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, Rocky Horror Picture Show does that. Uh, so I was like, oh, I, I guess this is like a a thing. <laughs> like I never really thought about it before. But there is like this kind of subgenre of uh, mistakenly, or, or not mistakenly, but um, unluckily kind of. Yeah, getting diverted. Being diverted you know, and, and and finding yourself in uh, some dire consequences, which I thought was it's like, really interesting. Psycho is like, you know, I, 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 it's, it's interesting to hear people talk about, you know, when they first saw Psycho and the, the you know, lines are wrapped around a theater and then the whole shower sequence and then, spoiler, Janet Lee's character getting killed in the first half hour. But it's like it gets set up like it's such a different movie where she's, uh, you know, sh- she's embezzling money. She's on the run. She stops. She buys a car from what's-his-face Anderson gets into the car and then she's trying to and then it gets starts getting bad weather so she just pulls off the main drag to just hide out for the night and then because of her luck of finding something that's vacant she goes and then suddenly she's murdered and then this whole other thing spawns off after it where it should just keep going that'd be a fun movie just to see what would have happened if janet lee didn't get the what if the marvel whatever (laughs) janet lee didn't get off the highway you know so you're right there are these movies where it's like they're the it's a different plot but then, for some whatever reason, you know, they get a flat tire or their car breaks down or whatever, even, and then um, they have to, you know, 
What's the Kurt Russell movie where his wife breakdown? Breakdown. That's another kind of similar. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, the, the, Hills have eyes. Also, kind of like Hills a, have eyes. A similar kind of, kind of concept. Um, yeah, a lot of these were just like the person. Yeah, the, or they, they encounter some Surya. Like that's the hitchhiker in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's funny because since I hadn't seen this in. in the, you know, we can get into this later, but they say that they Marvel, Warner Brothers, who put this out, uh, really kind of cut out a lot of the, I guess, the, the dirty or gorier. They wanted to give it a PG-13 rating. So that being said, that if there's, an, if there's a director's cut of this that is, in fact, a little more like um, grotesque and gruesome, you wonder, because when I watched this tonight, it was like a... This is like this is pretty fucked up, you know. It's like I'm watching this in like, you know, 1991 in the theater, and I, you know, the whole time it was a comedy for me because you're going into it looking at it like it's a comedy. Yeah. Um, but you take that out and you have the, the you know, for, for us the 30 years of since we've seen it or 25 years, and then you watch it with a different kind of eye. This can be played straight and be like a horrific. It is, you know, critics have described it like Beetlejuice meets Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and it is in that subgenre. I would say it is closer to a Texas Chainsaw Massacre or like a, I don't know, like a, a Children Under the Stairs or the People Under the Stairs as opposed to like a Beetlejuice. It is has that more of that Americana like. Um, uh, Route 66, but like the leftovers of that bygone era of the 20s to like the 50s. And then it's, you know, it's what the, the you know, the generations have forgot that's still happening out there. And then you come across this, you know, there's buses hanging out of the, out of the, you know, the, the ground and there's cars rotting in salvage yards. And, you know, and then you go into a, a 150 year old house that's falling apart. That's very Victorian or Georgian, and all of a yeah. sudden, it, you know, it's, so it's it has that beautiful, scary uh, subgenre elements that that is really terrifying. Well, I mean, I think you know, we kind of uh, as we approach this year, we talked about since we're doing less movies these days than we used to do, we kind of talked about that we would try to do movies that at least one of us was kind of really passionate about, mm-hmm. uh, and. Blake, you're showing my slip. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, when you brought this up, I don't think either one of us has any kind of, you know, specific uh, nostalgia like affinity. Or, or affinity for it. But when you brought this up as a possibility, I was like, yeah, okay. Only because, you know, aside from the thing that I bring up often when we do this show, which is this wonderful uh revisiting that we do of like the special effects and movie magic of past generations uh getting to you know total recall black hole all that kind of stuff where we get to look at the way movies used to be made and kind of explore that in a related note one of the great things about doing this show is going back and Picking out like the the things that, in a weird way, represent a past generation. Like when we did um, the like nineteen ninety Captain America, and like the nineteen ninety four unreleased version of uh, Fantastic Four. I said like mm-hmm. I, you know when we did those shows, I, I talked about how I don't have any specific nostalgia or affinity for those movies. 
but they're so of their time that it's hard not to have some kind of weird nostalgia when you watch it <laughs> because they represent so closely our childhood in a weird sure. way, even though I didn't watch them. It was those weren't movies that I grew up watching. Uh, this movie is a bit like that, too. It's such a weird. It's it's maybe the weirdest movie we've done on the show so far. You know, and it, it's it's almost like it's it has a little stamp of like we're part of the secret crowd because if we're of that generation, it's all our little secret. But <laughs> you know, I, and I guess that's with every generation. But if yeah. you if you're younger, you don't know this movie. So, like you're saying, if it's representative of a of an of an era or a, a generation, it's like we all have that. Like, oh yeah, remember that, that part movie? Of that remember how weird yeah. that movie was? So when you brought that is this, a, and it's a movie that we've you know full disclosure, it's a movie that we've talked about doing since we started this show. It because, was on one of the lists because it's so it was such a weird Wacky. oddity for even yeah. then. But when you watch it now, it is a bizarre oddity for 1991. Uh, but also, that movie couldn't be made in any other decade, you know what I mean? Or any yeah. other half a decade. Movies that weird have been made before and have been made since. But uh, the feel, the cast, the makeup effects, everything that comes together, uh, Digital Underground being in the movie, you know? Like, there's something that everything comes to a head of like early 90s all these that, like train crossings that pass <laughs> that will never cross again no junctions that makes it so specific to a certain era which happens to be the the era that we grew up in that uh, it was hard to to come up with a reason for us not to do this show finally because like i said it's been something that you know when we started talking about the kinds of movies we would do on the show back you know 6 years ago before we started doing the show like, yeah, you know, we could do something like Nothing But Trouble because it was a Whoa. movie that was like <laughs> something that we would have rented with our friends. Uh, but so, so weird. And having not seen this movie in 28 years or whatever it is, um, there's this, I have this weird, there's this weird like dichotomy of it's just as weird as I remembered it being. But it's also not as weird as I remember it. <laughs> oh, see, for, in like a weird, yeah. in a weird way, there's it's 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 hitting both parts. Where I'm like, well, this isn't quite as weird as I remembered it being. But then, yeah, this is pretty fucking weird, and I remember it being fucking weird. Yeah, for, it's, it, it's it's for me. It's like it's just as weird as it is, and it's almost a little more weirder because of some of the stuff. Maybe I didn't. I'm looking at now as an adult as opposed to watching yeah, it as a child just that too. Yeah. Um, the song I was thinking of that I couldn't remember it popped into my head. It's zoom a zoom zoom and a boom boom. Remember that? All I want to do is zoom a zoom zoom. Yeah, Just yeah. shake your rump with the girl, the saxophone. Do 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 do. That's probably like circa ninety one, ninety two. Anyway, um, yeah, it's because it's so. Th this is uh, it's it's like I it's you. You set the error up too. We're coming off of nineteen ninety, I believe. We just did Christmas Vacation um, last year. Uh, December 2019, and if I remember correctly, wasn't that was that 89 or was that 90? I want to say it was 89. I mean, okay, I was going to say 90 because because for me, uh, you know, Chevy Chase is huge because he's coming off of that. That was a big hit. Uh, he does Fletch Lives before this movie, which I don't think did very well because I don't think I've ever seen. 
I guess I, I don't. I, I think I've seen Fletch Lives, but I don't remember it very well. It was uh, Christmas Vacation was '89. Okay. Which because I remember talking about how we moved to Albany, I think in '88. Ah, and this was the first. Up there. And I remember my brother only came for like one Christmas, and I thought it was the Christmas of '88. But I remember we went to go see this movie. So Which would be '89. So must have been '89. So you have Chevy Chase is huge, and and it's he almost become near the end of this movie. He starts doing some action stuff. So I remember turning to you and I said, "I wonder if how far away this is from Memoirs of an Invisible Man, another movie Blake and I absolutely hold in such like you know <laughs> dear regard." It's another, the, uh, it's another the weird John oddity. Carpenter. Yeah, and uh, lo and behold, aside from TV appearances and little bits here and there, his next big movie was Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Right after this, and. Yeah. You know, you look at the height in careers of, say, Chevy Chase, where, you know, he was a megastar in the in the late 70s and 80s. He did the Christmas, uh, the I'm sorry, the vacation movies, which were huge. I'd say the pinnacle of those movies was the, tex- uh, was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> was the Texas was the- Chainsaw <laughs> Vacation. <laughs> yeah, that's a great mashup right there. National Absolute. Instead of going to... Yeah, instead of they, they hit the wrong exit, instead of getting to Randy Quaid's house, they go to the next house, and that's down there where they're like, you know, look what your brother did to the door. You know, that was, that's a, it's actually actually not that far off of this movie if you just put the Griswolds in this movie. It's kind of be yeah, what with that the, movie uh, would be. Yeah, uh, but um, so he's at the height of his for me, career-wise, with Christmas Vacation, which is 89. And then he goes on, of course, I'm going to see the next thing he's in. I didn't see Fresh Fletch, Fletch Lives uh, at the time. So this comes out. I'm going to go see it. And then you look at his career tra- trajectory, because then he does uh, Invisible Man, and then he kind of just neanders in the 90s for me. What does he do? He the, does, when does he do his late-night show? Remember he had a late-night show. I thought that was in the late '80s or early '90s, around that time, because it was. This is the also the era of Arsenio Hall. So everybody who's big and whatever, I've been. I was watching Arsenio Hall for like three or four years already at this point. Yeah. Um, so uh, I don't know if he was competition against Arsenio. Um, so you know, I think it's Vegas Vacation comes out like in '97 or '98. And I couldn't tell you what's happening with Chevy Chase in, in that part. Because that's when Jim Carrey <coughs> blows up soon after this, because he's on In Living Color, which is around this era. All these other comedians come out of the woodwork and kind of replace what he's doing. And then Dan Aykroyd, the same thing. Dan Aykroyd's the biggest thing ever, you know, in the early 80s, mid 80s. And then he kind of has some kind of weird clunkers. And then when he gets into this era, he directs this movie. And then this the movie doesn't do really well. And then. Uh, there's a movie which, to this day, full disclosure, I still never seen. Loose Cannons with him and Gene Hackman, where my friend Martin went to the theater to see it. I remember that day, and he came back. He's like, "It was a great movie." Where do you remember that? Where like Dan Aykroyd's like a nut, and they've got an ambulance or something, and Gene Hackman's the straight man in it or whatever like that. But I feel like that was after this, and then Dan Aykroyd's like, you know, he does some serious movies, and he does like My Girl and My Girl Two, where he's the father. Yeah. Um, but he's, his career is kind of going downhill a little bit at, at, at this point. He's not, you know, this. I don't think three years after this movie, he would have still been able to come back and do a movie like this again. You know, I mean, if you take this out of the equation, if, you, if this didn't flop or this had never been in 1991, yeah. I can't see a studio letting him do this movie in 1994 or 95 because by that time, it's such a different world. So you had, and then 
you know, God bless freaking John Candy. You know, John Candy's just putting out such great stuff at the time. So we, this is a John Candy's in this movie, and then Demi Moore. I remember it was just blowing up. Yeah, this might be the movie that kind of showed me to Demi Moore. Although I think this Ghost is like comes this, out. I think this he made Ghost before this. I mean, it was like she, yeah, she <laughs> shoots it before this. So maybe Ghost came out. I watched Ghost on the plane ride to Disneyland, my first Disney trip. So that was Rocketeer. Remember, I tell you, <laughs> is 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 I was starting to see. It was January of maybe that's ninety one. That was sixth grade, January of ninety one. Is uh, I went to Disneyland, so that would have been a right around the time I saw Nothing But Trouble. So I saw Ghost on the plane. So I think Ghost is nineteen ninety. Ninety, yeah. So yeah, so that's a, that's a huge movie that puts her. I hadn't seen prior to that the movie she's pregnant with. Michael Bean, what's that horror? She's having Bruce Willis. We, we always we right? always say this. We, we never remember Seventh Sign, maybe Seventh Seventh Seal, seventh seal. <laughs> the Seventh Sign. Yeah, so it's like I didn't know her, or, and I didn't know her from her. Didn't she? She was part of like the Brat Pack, kind of. Yeah, she might have been in. Uh, what's that called? One of the, one of those huge movies. Saint Elmo's Fire. Maybe she was in that. Yeah. So. You know, and then I remember her being so hot in this movie. Like, even to me, this is not that quite revealing her outfit. But at the time, like, you know, you're looking where the camera's making you look. So you're looking at her legs when she's bending over. You're looking at her cleavage and stuff like that. So the, this had everybody in it. So it's like, you know, that's the reason why, you know, on a Saturday afternoon, before my dad's going into work, he's like, you know, Dion, call your friend Martin up. We're going to go see nothing but trouble. You know, I'm like, okay, you know, I can't wait. And then we get in there and it's like, you know, they... From watching the trailer again, it's funny because sometimes you can remember what the trailer cut is. So if you if you've seen a trailer a couple times, when I go rewatch these trailers, I'm like, oh yeah, you know this is how it's cut. You know, and it's the trailer has Peter Cullen, uh, voiceover extraordinaire, aka Optimus Prime. You know, as like uh, Chevy Chase, and you know Autobots roll out, <laughs> nothing but trouble. You know, it's like uh, it's. <laughs> He's doing the voiceover stuff, so it's like, you know, it's funny. You see these jokes lined up, and you're like, oh, yeah, you remember the jokes and the gags more from the, for me for, from the trailer than from the movie. So um, I don't remember going to this movie and disliking it, you know? I, I would have to think about a movie that I went to see, and then when I came out, I was like, this, that was fucking terrible. So I remember having a good experience. Like, you know, what was your your uh, expectation level going into this, yeah. it's like, oh, it's going to be a quirky, crazy, Chevy Chase, Dan Aykroyd movie. You know, I mean, I think it got a little too weirder than I thought with the mutant babies in the salvage yard. Uh, but uh, I remember, you know, and I remember more stuff about the movie which didn't happen here. So I, like, I, for some reason, I had a memory of, uh, they, they say something about Chevy Chase, about his, he comes from a, uh, from a family of uh, wealthy financiers. So I thought they were going to link his grandfather, great-grandfather to the guy who sold Dan Aykroyd's family, you know, the, took the oil rights away or whatever, but that didn't yeah. happen. So, um, so, and in full disclosure, re-watching this, it's like, I freaking loved it. I mean, I was, I was, <laughs> I was like, this is, this is great. You know, I don't know why people just gave it such a, um, like, you know, I mean, notoriously, uh, Roger Ebert wouldn't even review it. It was so bad. I mean, he refused to even... And it's like, I don't think it's... The, I mean, I can think of far worse movies from that era. You know, uh, uh, you know the era of Problem Child, Problem Child 2, all these movies. Not, those aren't bad movies. Nuns yeah. on the Run. You know, it's such a quirky era of these crazy comedies. It's just, it's, it's just par of course. Yeah, I... Um, <clears throat> I loved the spectacle of it. 
You know what I mean? I, I, I don't know if I loved it like as a movie. I think it's really flawed. I think John Candy's kind of wasted in it. Yeah. Um, I think it's pretty clear that Chevy Chase does not give a shit about it while you're watching. It. Well, that's a, but so is it was that your? But I uh, but I it's hard not to being someone of our generation. It's hard not to watch it and just revel in like the the weirdness of the makeup, his apparent Ackroyd's apparent as a director writer. And you actually find out that a lot of these things that you do research were pitched to him from by crew members. But this apparent, as you watch it, not knowing anything about how it's made, uh, fa- his uh, what you what appears to be his apparent fascination with gadgetry, which I guess yeah. makes sense because when you think of like Ghostbusters and which he also wrote and and uh, you know even you know not so much of. Uh, in Blues Brothers, but this idea of the of the car of the of the police car being like special and what like machines, yeah, like you you get this sense that he has this fascination and 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 affinity for for machinery and gadgetry and stuff, and it seems like that when you watch this, it's on f- like full display, but it's also uh, a little sign of the times, you know, late eighties to early nineties. You know, we talk about like Webster having a a, a secret passage that goes down to like another room or you watch something like uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which we did on the show, which comes out before this, obviously, but like Pee-wee's house having all those, you know, well, Pee-wee's playhouses of this era, Pee-wee's you know, playhouse just coming like, out, you know, uh, you know, late and then mid eighties, but back to the future, like Doc Brown's machinery to feed the dog. You know, it seems like, if Remember you Clue, t- which we did on this show. Clue has all the passageways. Yeah. And the mansion if you and were stuff, going yeah. to, if you were going to make like a list of like the weird things uh, that I guess children of our generation were fascinated with, because we were being fed them, it would be like weird gadgetry, secret passages, ninjas, <laughs> treasure, <know>? treasure hunts, <laughs> pirates. <laughs> you know, like all these. It's just like this. Three houses. They're so specific. Yeah, they're so so. Specific to our childhood in a weird way, and maybe they're not. I just perceive them that way. But so watching to get back on track, watching nothing but trouble, like all the weird gadgetry, the weird makeup, the over-the-top set pieces, the over-the-top sets, the few, the couple of shots you get that are clearly like matte paintings, even if they are augmented by early CGI. I don't know. Uh, Look good. And just like the sheer fucking weirdness of it, it's like it's hard. Hey, this not, is it's hard not to watch that, and and at least I don't know if someone from who's younger today or someone that's older or whatever. But for our generation, at least for me, it was hard to watch this movie and not just be like captivated and engaged by all like the weirdness that was so specific to us. It you know I, I agree with you, John Candy's underused as the share the cop part i like the him having them show up in as the sister mute sister and you know this is of the era where uh around 89 i think it is back to the future too you start really seeing great examples of having the same actor on the screen 
where they do they have the special effect with like a diopter lens or the, I, there was a special way they were doing it where the the, the camera would do a take and then come back and do a take again robotically and get the same thing. So it, this was still a new idea when, when you see that shot of John Candy on screen with John Candy. Like, you know, and it looks 90% great, you know, st- it still holds up. But I remember that's something when you they show that they show that off in the theater, the trailer again, back me to the trailer. And it's like, you're like, ooh, you know, how are they, you know, they're doing that, you know. So it's like some of the, um, I mean, the budget they had. And for me rewatching it's almost like um the set design of this and and um to just think about the level of uh what's his name michael uh lanterry i think his name is who did the set pieces for this uh and on just all the 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 breadcrumbs they they leave of there's so much to read into that they don't even get into of this where it's just there's so much like you said, the gadgets or the the gimmicks in the movie, the set pieces, the uh, the the just the, the sets themselves, and and like the license plates that they have all around, or the IDs, or the drawbridges, the 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 judges uh, gadgets of him coming up and down off the the uh, off the the. Um, the courthouse off the bench, yeah, you know, yeah. or, or even like the, the the train going around on the on the uh, on the dinner table, like all that stuff is just like they they threw money at this thing, and it's just it it begs a question of like a backstory or a prequel. I, I would love to see, <laughs> I would love to see a prequel to this movie to learn where we get to to like you know to this point, and I would love to see a foreign a, a foreign remake of this movie that's completely straight, like yeah. the guys who did like. Um, High tension and all those, or like those, you know, whatever the the Australian horror movies, like you know, give me a, a straight version, of, but which I guess would te- take technically be the Texas Chainsaw Massacres. To would probably be extent, a straight yeah. version of this. I you mean, know, in a so weird it's, way, it's also, uh, it's also like a similar plot to something, not so much, but to like something like Doc Hollywood, which is like he rolls into the, he's a big city doctor. Rolls into the small town. I forget the plot, but I feel like he crashes into a fence. Fence, and then oh, he's yeah, his, and then he's like he's court stuck ordered in the town. to stay in town while his car is getting yeah. fixed and be a doctor. You know, that, which is which, also <clears throat> the plot. A couple years later, in Oliver Stone's U-turn, Jack, Sean Penn's Mustang breaks down in a small town. The town's full of all cameos, yeah. and then he's stuck in this town because Billy Bob Thornton, you know, takes his car part you know it's one of these movies yeah you're yeah. stuck in the town and then you're you know uh so it's like, it has all these a, elements it's like doc hollywood is around sometime around this time as well yeah this is know, 80 88 89 90 yeah <laughs> that's another movie i never saw doc, i've never seen doc hollywood but i remember being at a yankees game and then like every other inning playing the trailer of it on the big jumbo screen you know yeah. so they must have been you know must have been coming out and then that was it like the car hitting the white picket fence and his sports car, and it's like, you know, Michael J. Fox is a doctor stuck in a small town. <laughs> I actually with like nothing that. to do. I, I like that movie a lot, but I think I like sure. it a lot for the same reasons that I like Hallmark movies. Because th- oh, okay. th- that actually is like the plot of several Hallmark movies that just rip off Doc Hollywood. So, uh, like a small. So you write your. Like a big, 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 big city doctor in a small town is like a subgenre of of Hallmark movies. And so like, I think I just have an affinity for that kind of 
you know, uh, quaint, innocent storytelling. <laughs> you see, you should do your mashup. You do a Hallmark movie, but then you have it be like the Nothing But Trouble, where yeah. they get stuck in this town, and it's... You could go two ways with it. You make it a comedy where it's like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, a dark comedy where you're trying to like help the people like get better while they're killing people. Like you can't do that, you know. <laughs> or, or the other side of it is that you're stuck in the town and all this quirkiness is going on. And then you know it, this is the the birth of the indie movie in a couple of years. And there's a movie I always talk about, Ed and His Dead Mother with Steve Buscemi, which is a really quirky. You get a lot of these quirky movies that come out, and it kind of splits where you have. Those quirky movies that come and go that come out that are like these weird comedies or or um, just really weird esoteric movies that are in the con- comedy genre. Or you get those big budget ones that come and go like uh, I love Roddy Dangerfield. There's a movie Meet Wally Sparks that came out in the mid to late 90s, which I don't even know if it's come on DVD yet. You know, So some of these movies that you just, you know, uh, Opportunity Knocks, which is from, I think, 1990 with Dana Carvey yeah. is around this time. You have a lot of these, uh, you know, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, isn't this around, um, I think, this time, 91, 92? Yeah, probably. You also, like, in terms of weirdness um, and, like, far out, just like over the top craziness. It's like a couple years after this, you get that Mario Brothers movie. Sure, you know this is that's no. I think that's this year. That's that's either ninety one or ninety two because I had that in seventh grade. Uh, I went to see. It's a story not to get into on the podcast, but I went to see that a friend of mine who I had met at high in middle school. His dad worked at the local uh, popular music radio station, Kiss ninety five point seven. So they played all this kind of the radio edits of these really radio-friendly hip-hop. And so they were hosting a, uh, a sneak peek of Mario Brothers. And I, the only time I've ever seen Mario Brothers was I went with my friends for a sneak peek. And uh, that was around this time. So it's like of that, this is all Adam's family is all that remind you know, MC Hammer, you know, yeah, the, uh, yeah. you know, uh, well, which is, I think this Street is the Ninja Turtles, which we did had the awesome secret of the, the oozes here. Yeah, that's of uh, this is the era of Vanilla Ice. This is the era of Too Legit to Quit. Adam's Family Values, probably, you know. So all this uh, and these people who were comedic icons in the era, you know, John Candy, uh, Chevy Chase, and Dan Aykroyd. You know, I mean, John Candy meets with a with a, with a terribly un, uh, untimely death, but the other guys are kind of like coming. You know that you. They're still of the you know like you said this is very much an eighties movie even though it's nineteen ninety yeah. released in ninety one but you're using these comedic icons from that era and then within a year or two you're going to have like the Jim Carrey's all these other people just break out sure you're going to have all these other crazy comedies that you know yeah. and then like I, I said mean, I feel could, like these movies guys get eclipsed yeah well yeah I mean we get Wayne's World just shortly after this a year, yeah a year it's, or it's, two it's, after this which we did. Or on the show, in case anybody's interested. Yeah. But uh, that's a fa- there's also a- almost as equally fascinating as the craziness of this movie. I find the genesis and the making of this movie pretty interesting as well. So maybe we should dive into that. Um. Well, do you the story? Here. Well, we don't the have story. to if you don't want to. <laughs> I don't know if I want to. Um, well, do you? Th- I don't think we want to do that this week. Um, so you get Dan Aykroyd and his friend, uh, the producer, um, uh, Weiss, right? Yeah. Um, Robert uh, K. Weiss. Yeah, Robert K. Had, Weiss. Who had produced, like, uh, uh, Blues Brothers with Dan Aykroyd, several things. Yeah, and uh, they're friends together, and uh, he had just 
hurt himself, and they were gonna. He was gonna. They they were all gonna go to a movie. Him and his other, maybe the other brother was it the, the uh, Dan Aykroyd's brother? Maybe there's conflicting stories when you look, when you try to research this. Some say that it's Dan Aykroyd and Robert K. Weiss decide to go to a movie, and then some stories say that it's. And then what? And then what happens in that that exchange? Dan Aykroyd then goes and talks to his brother later, and then there are some stories online where it was Dan Aykroyd, his brother Peter, and Robert K. Weiss all went to the movie together. So yeah. there's kind of conflicting stories, but the the gist, the uh, spirit of the story and what happens in the story <laughs> is the same in, in all in all renditions. Yeah, Aykroyd knows Weiss because they did Doctor Detroit, Blues Brothers, like you said, and then Dragnet as well. And uh, they go to the theater, and he hurt himself, Weiss, so he's he's br- bruised the rib, and he says he just can't go see a comedy because he can't laugh. So they're looking for a movie, and then I guess Aykroyd says we'll go see a horror movie because um, that's you know, you're not going to laugh at a horror movie. That'll be fine for you. And he's like, okay, because I'm really sore. And they go see. This is why I said I don't know if I wanted to tell the story. They go see Hellraiser, and yeah. this is what I don't understand. So from your point of view, they say they go to see Hellraiser and everyone's just laughing in the theater. And I don't remember Hellraiser being like schlocky horror, no. especially if I watch it now. But even back then, I would think, you know, it's a unique audience to have. You know, you don't have a bunch of millennial hipsters in the theater. It's like, yeah, you know, it's I like, mean, but there is something that happens in <clears throat> horror movies when you go see horror movies. And it, uh, it could be that, you know, this story of Dan Aykroyd and Robert K. Weiss gets kind of blown out of proportion a little bit. But there's something that happens when you go see horror movies sometimes, which is uncomfortable laughter. You know what I mean? Where it's not I necessarily see. that they find it funny. Sometimes it is, and it's because you're seeing something retroactively or retrospectively. And, you know, things like become cliche after, over time. And we've talked about our frustrations with going to see movies. It could be that. Um, it could also just be like I would, the, I would hope so. It could also just be like the overtopness of Hellraiser, which is pretty over the top. And I've, I, you know, full disclosure, I've never seen Hellraiser in an with an audience. I've only ever watched it like by myself or with one or two other people at home. Yeah, and maybe the energy of an audience creates some kind of laughter. But so I don't know. You're right. I mean, I don't. I never thought of it as being like an. Exp- extremely like campy cheesy movie to laugh at but it could just be a thing of like i said the uncomfortability kind of, yeah that's what we're gonna go with but we're yeah. gonna go with they were so uncomfortable with the horrificness of of uh andy robinson saying <laughs> like and Jade, and what is it and christ wept that <laughs> you know what do you call it? that that they were laughing so as our story rolls on uh I guess Ackroyd seeing the reaction of the audience laughing at this horrific horror movie, he suddenly wanted to make a uh, a comedic horror movie. So, and it, and then uh, this also has origins to another movie which I have near and dear to my heart, which I haven't seen in years, called Haunted, Haunted Honeymoon, which is a Gene Wilder movie, which is from the '80s, which is kind of like a horror. You know, so that genre had been played with for a number of years. The, you know, even going back to Mel Brooks with Young Frankenstein, the sure. the, the horrific comedy. Or Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Or Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And by and this point, Evil Dead. A, by this point, we even had Evil Dead too. Yeah, yeah. So that launched. A, they did another five or six movies. Abbott and Costello doing meeting horror people, and you know, uh, 
uh, even the Go- the Ghostbusters, the live action seventies with uh, what's his face uh, from F Troop and uh, yeah. you know the the gorilla that they turned into the cartoon. Well, even Ghostbusters is a horror comedy. I mean, really. Yeah, you know, they, it's 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 what it seems to be is that you know a lot of people. I, like even with Evil Dead, I, I would assume it set out to be a straight horror movie, but then not the campiness, but there's a way they can lean it, uh, and it becomes funny inherently, not because of the gags or whatever, but just be, maybe because of like you said, the uncomfortability. And a lot of these big budget movies, like a Ghostbusters, I feel like they become comedies because the studio is uncomfortable with how they want to market it. So because of it becoming a sh- not letting them be, have it be a straight horror movie, you put the gags in. I mean, it's also good script writing that you put a funny bit in and it gives the uncomfortable people the release of a laugh and then a minute later you could scare the crap out of them again. But it seems like, say, like this movie had to lend itself to be a little more comedic because the gross-out gags they'd cut out. Yeah. So I, I always feel like sometimes, uh, not all the time, but sometimes this, it's imposed on you by the studio. that Like, let's make it more of a comedy. And you're like, N- you know, then it kind of blows itself up. So... Uh, this movie seems like they wanted it to be a little more dirtier, and there's there is a director's cut somewhere of it, but which I would love to see if it ever got a Blu-ray release because this isn't on Blu-ray, and I don't even think it's available in widescreen. Yeah, the movie, the DVD I talked about that I own isn't widescreen. It's it's just and evidently it's pretty wide from what I've heard. So that's a shame. So getting back on track, Ackroyd comes up with an idea. I want to make a movie like this, and this was back in the time where he was big enough to I guess start pitching. You know, he's still. He has a lot of great writing credits and stuff like that, and he had done, um, at this point with Warner Brothers, he had done uh, Spies Like Us with Warner Brothers, and he had done Driving Miss Daisy with Warner Brothers, and Driving Miss Daisy, although he only has a co-star in it, that was a huge hit. So I guess he goes to Warner's pitching, and there's another element of the story, which with, with the urban folklore, there's a discrepancy where it's either it happens to Dan Aykroyd himself or it happens to his brother, Peter Aykroyd, where they're driving in upstate New York. The story I heard is that when Aykroyd in the 70s, in the late 70s, commuting back from Saturday Night Live, he's going to Canada, maybe, I don't know, during the week or whatever. I can't see him commuting for that commuting for that one day because with the rigorous schedule. Yeah. But he's driving. And I could see him driving because back in the day, a lot of people used to drive cross-country. He's a big motorhead. He likes cars. So, he is dri- so he's driving up in... The story is, if it's either his brother or himself, is that he's pulled over late at night up in the, the boondocks of New York State, up north, going towards the Canadian border. And he gets pulled over for some... He's speeding, and uh, the cop won't let him pay a ticket or pay a fine right there. The cop actually makes him drive, follow him at 2 in the morning, 8 miles to some some little like town. And in the town, they have this little house that's also the... Justice of the Peace, it's also the judge, it's also the sheriff. They wake the judge up, and then the judge, he has to go in front of a judge, and then he get, pleads his case out or whatever. Then after that's done, uh, then there's various accounts if the judge is a male or a female, the judge asks him to stay for tea. Now, I don't know if that means uh, tea in the sense that have cups of tea, or uh, the English term for having dinner is stay for tea. So if this is being told to us by someone who wrote it British, it could be that they said, like, you want to stay and have some food. Yeah. And then so the story is Ackroyd stays for like four hours. So evidently he had a good, at the end of it, he he elected to stay for a while and just shoot the shit with this person. So he stays there. 
And then he gets out of the ticket and his life goes on. So years later, he keeps that in his head. That is an idea that comes back to him because like I alluded to earlier in this podcast is like, I've encountered these weird towns, you know, where it is like, wow, you know, they could, you know. So that's another thing I thought where they were going in this story because when the, we're jumping all around, but when the judge is on the bench and he starts yelling at them about the uh, Vulcanvania, and Debbie, Demi Moore's like, what, you're talking pre-Magna Carta? I thought they were alluding to that because if this was formed before all that, maybe it was almost like the Vatican. It was its own little... So they could do whatever the hell they want because you're, you're on their, you know, yeah. their, their country property. But they never... That's another thing that just... I thought if you had one more line, that would completely make sense. That, oh, of course they can put you to death because if you're in Vulcanvania, they, have their, they go by their own laws, whatever. So... Uh, getting back to the story, he decides to take Dan Aykroyd, I guess Peter Aykroyd, right? Yeah. He, the, both of them decide to write the story? Yeah, well, the spec script. that's why it gets kind of hairy, because it's, I mean, in terms of uh, accuracy, because, you know, like Dion said, there's conflicting stories. Um, some of the stories are that d- the story happened to Dan Aykroyd, and, but Peter Aykroyd was the one like, hey, why don't you do it? Why don't you do a like a horror com- comedy horror of that story? Because Peter Eckroyd doesn't get screenwriting credit, but he does get story by. So, but if it's really Dan Aykroyd's story, then I know it's, it's it's confusing. I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. But it seems to be that one of the Aykroyd brothers. <laughs> yeah, it happened to one of the Aykroyd brothers, and <laughs> they collaborated on it in some fashion, although it's kind of unclear because Dan Aykroyd gets screenplay credit, but Peter Aykroyd gets story by credit. Yeah. So I, 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 that's what I don't understand is who gets what. And I didn't realize until, you know, watching the credits in this, that he's actually in it. He has a small part as, um, uh, the Mike, the doorman, the Irish guy, uh, for, for Chevy Chase's, um, uh, uh, building who he, he has a pretty funny role in it. Um, so they end up writing this, uh, spec script that they first entitled Git, which is also another kind of, you know, British kind of a, I, I know it as a British name, a Git. So, and it's the story of a rich finance, you know, what we have here, a rich financier, a rich guy from the city who gets, like we said, stuck in this, you know, bumblefuck town. And then, you know, he gets a, a kind of a, it is kind of a weird, like almost like a Tales from the Crypt episode. Yeah. Kind of come up in, you and know, it you get feels like, like it, you know, and then also there's a, there's, there's a big twist at the very, very end of the movie. There's, there's a twist that they, you know, they know the judge. There's a twist at the very end, the funny joke was that, you know, they're going to come. So there's a lot of, so it has that EC, it has that EC kind of feel. Yeah. Um, so, and it straddles, I mean, it's it's certainly in the world of comedy because of who is in it, but it very easily can go either way. Bone Stripper, you know, by Damn Yankees. Bone Stripper, you know, it's like the, it has this horrifying aspect of it, which is kind of just it's. And I don't, I, I don't know. How do you? What is your breakdown of it? I mean, as we're going on here. Well, I think uh, you know, just little trivial things. Um, uh, reportedly, it took. Aykroyd six months to write that initial screenplay that Dion's talking about. Um, it goes uh, it goes through several title changes. Starts out as Git, G I T, as Dion said, and then it becomes uh, Road to Ruin. Yep. 
And then eventually, I think while they're shooting it, it gets changed to Vulcanvania, which is the name of the town. Well, they, got, they get Trick House. They turn it from Road to Ruin. It goes to Trick House, then to Vulcanvania while they're shooting. And I think that was going to be the title to be released until Warner takes it. And it and might have Warner... even been initially promoted that way. Not maybe they, not the trailer yet, but like an announcement that this movie's coming out. Called um, Vulcanvania. Uh, and in... then when Warner takes it and recuts it, it turns into... They they rename it Nothing But Trouble. They say... A because young... of a Demi Moore line. Yeah, they say a young so Dion's it... going to want the name of the movie <laughs> exactly. to be said within the movie. So we need to name it something. You're Nothing But Trouble. And I was like, that's <laughs> See, it, it proves my hypothesis. Every movie must have its uh, title in it as a young Dion. Uh, apparently, it's like the world's filling to maximum overdrive. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> apparently, uh, uh, Dan Aykroyd kind of... He's the one that may have... Uh, initially given it this comparison that Dion brought earlier, which is like kind of Beetlejuice meets Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But again, all this information is kind of hearsay and, and a bit conflicting. Uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting about it is that uh, he bases the town, Vulcanvania, kind of uh, on this uh, Centralia, Pennsylvania, which apparently was like a cold A mine, real town. Which was a real town and is a real town in uh, Pennsylvania, and it was a coal mining town. And then at some point uh, in like 1962 or so, in the early 60s, a coal fire started out underneath the town, and it, it kind of ruined the town. And, and now it's like this empty town with, you know, with big fissures in the ground. and, and that, so, uh, it, it, Yeah, supposedly, I guess, the coal fire is still burning, and now the town's abandoned. At least and as of 1991, of, I don't. Might yeah, still be. I don't know, but I mean, that's you know, I, it, that's such an interesting idea that the 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 backstory of that they have this town that because you know you get down to that area, Jersey, Pennsylvania, whatever you know, there's a lot of mining, coal mining. There's all you know a lot of uh, the fossil fuels, so it is an interesting idea that there is a town that you know. Again, it's it's like these breadcrumbs they leave for other things that aren't really explained except with one-off sentences, which we you and I talk about all the time on this podcast about. I love that you know um, the Gulf Fire over uh, freaking what's the name of that you know from from uh, we talk about from Escape from New York, oh, yeah, Escape from uh, New Lening- York. the Gulf Fire over Leningrad. Um, these one-off lines, and they say in the movie, Dan Aykroyd says that a coal fire has been burning. Uh, under Vulcanvania since uh, a mine fire since 1926. So it just leaves you thinking like, wow, you know, and that's, that's the reason why you have all these fissures under the ground that are, that are sometimes unstable or whatever. Or at, at any point, the place could blow up. Uh, and then you think that's a forest, but then like this cent- Centralia and Pennsylvania, this town, this actually happened. They, you know, you think about, they do have all these mines and you look at my bloody Valentine or, you know, that's uh, you can make tons of horror movies about mines, um, and sometimes in real life, they're horror movies, like the people who got stuck in Chile. I think it was some number sure. of years ago that came out alive that they made a movie about, uh, that, the that actually stuff like this happens. The series finale of, uh, quantum leap talks about, was that, the, was that the pe- mind file people with, getting uh, stuck in a mine with Bruce O'Gill maybe has a God <laughs> as the bartender. If I remember, I haven't seen that since it aired. Uh, but see, so I love all that. So we get back to. That's a real aspect that there's a place in Pennsylvania that, that is like that. So, and, uh, uh, Aykroyd. I was just going to yeah, say, go and one of the other interesting, because I, I mean, Aykroyd seems like a weird and interesting guy. I mean, when we did Blues Brothers on the show with uh, Mike Vanderbilt, we talked about how like his initial script was 
like you know, three hundred pages, and it went into like. Well, he has like a psychology degree. If if I remember correctly, he went to college for his. He comes from a very very smart family, and not wealthy, but I think they're upper middle class, and maybe they're even hold a government office in Canada. He's Canadian, second city. I think isn't he from that whole troop? And um, so he's very smart intellectually. And then, like you're saying, yeah, so when he writes the Blues Brothers, it's a phone book because it's just, there's so much shit he's trying yeah. to come out. And that's and all his affinity for blues music and stuff. Descriptions of the car and all this stuff. And then it was John Landis that kind of whittled it down to the script that, uh, you know, is, becomes the movie. But also, uh, Ghostbusters comes out of the fact that he's very much like a paranormal theorist and fascinated yeah. with the paranormal and aliens and ghosts and all that stuff. So I was like, he's a really fascinating He's got a very interesting mind. And so when you also read that, like, the giant mutant babies in this movie come oh. are based on a series of dreams that Aykroyd was having at the time. Um, sure. So it's just like... It just it, it lends to it. He seems like it would be a fascinating... You, like, you had texted me while we were researching this movie before we watched it, which was like, you know, this would be... an It would be amazing to just interview Aykroyd about this movie. Um, yeah, and what his thoughts are, because I'm sure he doesn't get a lot of questions about. But I'm sure uh, he would this just expe- specifically. And I'm, but I'm sure he would just be a fascinating person to just talk to, in general. Yeah, like you know, uh, maybe not so much like on a promotional interview, like he was interview, he's promoting something specific. But to just sit down and talk to him and just pick his brain about things, I'm sure he'd be fascinating. Uh, yeah, he's since he's such a big motorhead, you get the Blues Brothers out of that. You get. You know the Ecto One, you know the old Cadillac hearse. I think those those the elements of him the, of being the the Detroit Mopar kind of a guy uh, that all lends itself to this, and where you have a lot of the technology or the machinery, the Americana car uh, aspects of this. And like you said, he's huge into the paranormal. He's huge into aliens. He he has that huge affinity. He put out an alien documentary in two thousand three or four. Um, uh, I've said this before on the cast. My wife's father used to be a, a huge guy in in ufo uh in that world he he helmed the biggest ufo magazine in the world out of the uk and he passed away in 2003 and they sold the magazine rights and library to Ackroyd, and he used that stuff to put out that documentary they did in 2003 or four on ufos so he has a huge affinity i've met him twice at my day job, one time, it's this crazy story I won't get into here, but the second time more recently was when he was promoting his vodka. He had that skull vodka. Yeah, which and is I, based on the crystal skulls, you know. Yeah, like you know, and, and, and from what talking to him, it's that vodka is actually the number one vodka in Russia because of how he distills it. He distills it through like a diamond. I forget the, 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 the process of, of distilling it and getting all the impurities out of it and stuff like that, but it's a very popular vodka. Um, I mean, a lot of people like it because of the, the, what, you, what it comes in, the different size skulls, and I think, they're, like you said, they're kind of a crystal, the glass. And uh, I spoke to him about my f- deceased father-in-law, and that's so he's like, oh, okay, and he, it clicked, so we chatted for a minute, and we were just shooting the shit, and he just, he was, he was of that time I met him, he was very nice. Very, very nice. And, it, and like you said, it'd be great to just sit down and just pick his brain about all the weird, like, you know, if you do your research on him and you're informed and you're not just going in, like you say, just to interview him about the Blues Brothers or Ghostbusters. Yeah. There's so much stuff 
that you could just like eclectic shit like this. Nothing but trouble. You can ask him about, you know, what we are, or you know, his paranormal. You know, I, I, I don't know if it was he had seen aliens in, in growing up in Canada or something like that, or or what his affinity to the paranormal is. But it is because of him we have the Ghostbusters, or it is because of him we have the you know the Blues Brothers. So it's all these or this movie. So it would be interesting to talk to him about just from a writing standpoint or, or his ideas because I'm blanking right now but I feel like there are three or four other things that he's written or done that you can be like well what about this specifically you know yeah. uh, even musically you know like you you're you're a, a blues musician so he'd be interesting just to talk to you about then musical theory and why sure. he likes um the down child blues band or you know all the different things that he brings so that when you come to this and he suddenly has a musical segment of uh digital underground in this movie at first you look, watch it now out of context so this is really we- why does the movie stop and there's almost a musical sequence well it's like well you know that's not new ground for awkward because they do that in the blues brothers they do that and you know i'm sure there's another movie that you know so it kind of makes sense at the time and it's kind of almost forward thinking because he's bringing almost a new genre into it for to open this movie potentially to another audience that might not see it or care to see it. Yeah. You know, but, uh, moving along back on track, moving right along. Uh, apparently Ackroyd initially offers the script or pitches the script to John Hughes, who apparently likes it. There's parts about it that he likes, so he doesn't turn it down right away, but eventually, uh, does ultimately turn it down because he says he only directs the scripts he writes. Um, is that true? I guess that's, he's only directed, stuff he's written i guess i mean i he, i mean now he's written more things than he's directed i mean i think he yeah. more considers himself or considered himself since he's passed away a writer than a director but uh he pitches it to john landis who doesn't like it and and uh, well the the whatever he um hughes help with this because you said like he, he likes it a lot if you watch the credits it does say in a very special thanks to john hughes so john hughes must have had some sort of yeah maybe input in it enough to get a credit yeah, yeah. Um, like you said, and he goes to John Landis, who just doesn't like it and turns it down. And um, I also heard that he also offered it to uh, Ivan Reitman, who obviously he had yeah. done go, uh, Blues Brothers with, and um, and stuff. And you think about what what is Landis doing? Landis doing like it isn't blood around this time, maybe ninety one. Yeah, I don't 92, know. Ninety two, you know, also you know, because he's coming off of Three Amigos. Sure. And uh, that's also is is that no, that's not Ackroyd. Who's that Ackroyd? Is that is it is it Chevy Chase? No, it's. Chevy Chase, Steve Martin, and uh, Martin Short. Martin Short, yeah, but still. Or maybe Dan Aykroyd plays another role in it. I, don't know. I haven't seen that movie in so many years. Um, I saw that at the movies. I remember going to see wow. that. Wow, you know, but I because I always feel like um, Landis's career hadn't fully recovered since the whole you know Twilight Zone thing. Although he made a, a bunch of successful movies going into the the late eighties with Eddie Murphy and into the nineties, and then they did um, what is that? The middle or early nineties? There's the the third um. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop, which I think kind of flops. Yeah. Uh, so it's just interesting at the time that he's bouncing around. It's and it's like he, uh, and I, it, it, from the stories you read about this, it just seems that Landis just comes off kind of like a dick. Like he he automatically turns it down. Like it's like me letting Blake see something and Blake's like no, <laughs> throws it back in my face. You know, well, it's, like, it's a pretty take a night. <laughs> I could say it's a pretty. Int- I mean, it's a script that's pretty specific. I could see yeah somebody reading this and be like yeah like this is not I th- this is not me. You could you should find somebody else. But ultimately, they want to get going on the script and uh, but it's a good pitch though because he's a horror movie. You know he he did the Blues Brothers, which is the crazy car. 
and then he did the Twilight Zone, which is. But then he also did um, uh, uh, American Werewolf, American Werewolf in, in London. London. Yeah. So it's kind of like, and then he's gonna do Innocent Blood. Maybe that's the reason why he can't. He doesn't want to do too much of the same thing. But uh, uh, ultimately, I guess they so that the so that it doesn't get passed by. Aykroyd, uh kind of offers to direct it, right? Um, well, he's at the same time. I think he's 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 pitching it around, and Warner's gets interested because of the word of mouth, because they're they're pitching the script, and uh, Warner's gets in. Like I said, he liked the Ackroyd had a good re- working relationship with them, and uh, he goes to Warner. And he's like, you know, whatever they greenlight the the budget for, he says, I want to play the main character in the movie, the, the financier, the finance investor, and I also want to play the uh, the judge in it. And then Warner comes back and says, we'll do the movie, but we want to cast Chevy Chase as the financier, uh, the finance advisor he's in it, the, the financial investment counseling or financial publisher he is in the movie. And Ackroyd says, sure, and Warner has Chevy Chase on the mind because they've done all the successful vacation movies with Chevy Chase. So uh, this is what I said to you a little earlier in this is that when you bring Chevy Chase into the loop here and um, before we get into the all the stuff with Chevy Chase, do you feel like when I watched it again on this rewatch, knowing what I'm about or about to talk about, do you feel like Chevy Chase is just like, eh, because I felt like he's just being Chevy Chase like he is in any other movie, the nonchalant kind of way. Like to me, it doesn't seem so much through he's walking through the part like I've seen in other movies which i can't cite right now yeah, yeah. like i th- like even when i saw the movie in the theater i didn't think it was him just taking a paycheck i thought he was involved he's, you're getting chevy chase in his 50s or whatever however old he is there you know what i mean um it's well, just as much as he's going to put into like uh memoirs of an invisible man in a yeah year or two. but but you have to take one thing I, I thought about while we watch this and then when you research it and you hear about kind of how much of a dick he was when one of the times that uh, Dion came with me to Monster Mania, and we had a table there, and we were, you know, meeting listeners for the show, but also selling copies of my book and whatnot, scored to death conversations with some of Horace Gray's composers. One of the times that we were there, John Carpenter was also there, mm-hmm. and uh, we went over. Let's say I think it was the time with you. We went over and we to see him speak. We kind of yeah. walked in late. And he was doing a Q and A on like sure. the Saturday yeah, night, and somebody yeah. asked him. Somebody asked, uh, like, "Can you talk a little bit about uh, the Memoirs of an Invisible Man?" And he's just like, "Yeah, um, Chevy Chase is an asshole." <laughs> That's all he said about the movie. <laughs> and that is from uh, I've only heard one good thing. <laughs> Even before I was in the industry, I, I had a. a, a a manager at a party store telling me that he met Chevy Chase once at a basketball game and he was really nice to him. And that's the only other time I've heard nothing but horror stories uh, from people who've met Chevy Chase, either word of mouth like this or uh, colloquially through these uh, research we do. And that's, it goes back to the story of when Chevy Chase bails from Senate Live very quickly, and that's where the animosity builds that there's supposedly a fist fight between Bill Murray and Chevy Chase b- backstage when Chevy Chase comes back to host whatever the year that is because Dan Aykroyd and Belushi are, uh, are fueling Murray because there's such a dislike for Chevy Chase. And uh, I think Chevy Chase, uh, I might be wrong, but I think his upbringing in this is that he is... He comes on as a writer, I think, for Saturday Night Live, and then uh, they quickly uh, 
he pitches himself, so he writes skits to have himself in, and that's how he's able to get on in front of the the, the camera on Saturday Night Live, and that starts a career. And then he blossoms very quickly, and there's you know there's a bunch of movies he's he's in that sometimes people forget. He's in that Goldie Hawn movie with that hilarious Dudley Moore sequence. Yeah. He's in a bunch of movies in the late seventies. And then as his star power grows, that's all I hear is that he's a real dick. And that's it. That's just, you know, I feel like so so not needed. I feel (laughs) like when we did, even when we did Christmas vacation last year, I feel like there was like somebody else was signed on to direct it. I could be wrong, but I recall that was like yeah, somebody couldn't. else was going to direct it, but then they, he just couldn't get along with Chevy Chase, so he left the project or something. Yeah, and, and, and then I hear that, and this comes to here where Chevy Chase signs on, Warner's gets him to do what he's doing, and he's friends with Aykroyd, sure. And then once they get on set, it's kind of like, what do we just talk about? Um, oh, Peter Sellers with the director who did The Changeling. Uh, you know, once the, for that ghost of whatever, the Peter Sellers movie oh, that never yeah, came yeah. out. Once... Ackroyd or Chevy Chase gets on set. Chevy Chase just like hates it, and he's evidently berating Ackroyd in front of the crew about he's more important because he's getting paid more on the set, and he's yelling at Demi Moore because their clothes are too skimpy. Which what's what's the complaint there for even for what they're doing? Yeah. And um, to the point where the crew starts sticking up for Ackroyd, and there are stories where Chevy Chase the night later will call up and apologize individually to the people, which I can believe, you know, take them aside. Like, I'm sorry for berating you in front of the crew, you know, but it's like, that's, that's not needed in this. And so, but evidently Chevy Chase makes it a very unpleasant experience from his point of view, because he's, so this comes around to the question I proposed to Blake is, do you feel like his, the performance is that's kind of uh, channeled into the performance here? Yeah, it's a tough call. I mean, I to me, it because you said he, yeah, earlier you said it. Kind of, you kind of feel like he's just like, you know, just bumping his shoes along, dragging his shoes along through the yeah, roll. Yeah, I guess I did, but it's also coming off of hearing all these stories about him being an asshole on things. So maybe it could have just been me like reading into it. Um, you know, I feel like he does have a brand of comedy. I mean, I feel like the the Clark Griswold character. Is a, is more of an innocent, you know, character. So you don't. I don't think that character reads as much like an asshole as say uh, the the character he plays in this movie, who is clearly, um, you know, it's, it's a it's a weird character because it's like obviously he's our protagonist, and I guess we're, we're we do like that him was my and, next question, and to we're you. supposed to like him, but at the same time, he is like a he's a dick. He's a dick to but is John he see, Candy. He's a dick. <laughs> he's he a dick to, to everybody. Yeah. So, so so it's that's what. So my next question is: He's he, in the movie. He's supposed to be this. So, did you think he does he redeem himself by the time the end of the movie? Because at the beginning of the movie, you're saying he is our protagonist. You you are getting some of those Chevy Chase esque um, performance hallmarks where he says like a little spits out a little joke at the end of the scene that, you know, that he usually does. Like, oh, not fun, you know, something. And you're like, oh, that's a Chevy Chase line, or you could tell that was an ad lib. But at the beginning of the movie, it, it, the script sets him up to be a dick. He's supposed to be a, a rich elitist who then is being knocked down to this world. But uh, it seems at the beginning of the movie, it straddles the line where you're like, yeah, he's rich, but you're kind of like, it's almost like Dan Aykroyd and, well, I guess you're not supposed to like Dan Aykroyd in Trading Places. But it's like, you know, he... Chevy Chase is not so much an over-the-top snob, but he is kind of snobby. And then, like you said, he when we get into the car and on the road and the thing, he does choose to try to get away from from John Candy, who's the cop trying to pull him over. So 
you know, when he when he finally gets pulled over, I, I don't know why he doesn't think he's going to be arrested because he he did try to run outrun the guy. You know, I mean, uh, yeah. not only that, he, he you know he, he was the scene with the, the he's going around the dump trucks. You know, so he did put people in lives in danger. You know, so when you go through all that, and then by the end of the movie, you know, I I wrote that as a note. You know, Chase it, is is his is his character re- redeemable? I wanted to ask you because near the end of it, it's like. You know, he's supposed to, is he supposed to come around and, you know, he does say, you know, at the end of the day, he's a good guy. He goes and tries to save Demi Moore and stuff like that. He doesn't try to run for his life on his own. Yeah. But it's, it's what's odd. the intention of the script? It's an odd character because I feel watching it like he didn't seem like a dick until he got to Vulcanvania. You know, like yeah. he seemed like he's nice to the door guy. The door guy's like, "Oh, I." Yeah, it's true. You know, he I used your tips. That stock, tr- tr- yeah, yeah. Like he seems. He and seems where'd like you a get nice that? Guy. He, you know, he doesn't necessarily. It's also for exposition, though. Yeah, you but know, also, he shows his his Thorn Weekly letter. But also, like he seems nice to that guy. He seems to like that guy. He seems nice to Demi Moore. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, and he doesn't he doesn't come off sleazy when he meets her. Were you? Were you a parent of the age gap there? Yeah. Because when I first saw it, I didn't. I wasn't. I was like, oh, it's just, to me, it's Chevy Chase trying to get with a hot girl. Well, you know, all of us would be doing the same thing in his place. But then when you watch it now, it's like, how old is Demi Moore in this movie? In her 20s, probably? Well, maybe? I mean, I think that happens with um, age, our age. You know what I mean? I think we yeah. become more, uh, that becomes a much Aware bigger thing. We become more like... I was just having this discussion with someone on Twitter about my cousin Vinny, and I was like, <laughs> because like you know, so that's a, another movie of this era. As because as a kid, you don't really think about that. You know, Joe Pesci is a thousand years older than Marissa Tomei in that movie, but oh. nowadays when you watch it, and they and they knew that in that movie, and we'll when we do that movie eventually, we'll talk about it, and they tried to make him look younger because they were afraid that he was going to look too much older. But that's... I love when we profile Fred Gwynn movies. <laughs> Ralph Macchio. But that um, is... Uh, but, but, you know, it, it, but to here it almost escapes. It almost... It's almost believable. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, people... It's not unheard of that people of any age get into relationships of especially male or female. Especially when a guy is wealthy, you know? Yeah. It's not so, so much you know, it's not... Yeah, and it, to me, it, I, I, again, I think if you waited another three years, Chevy Chase still looks, you know, still looks good. But in another couple of years, maybe by Vegas vacation, he's starting to show his age, in my opinion. You know, I mean, look, he's a freaking leading man uh, in in memoirs. You know, he's running around, jumping around, doing stuff, uh, which is such an odd. I haven't done any back reading up to this date of memoirs. I, mean, I don't know if you know it since you're a carpenter. Uh, alumni and fan um what was the uh, not to, to get into this either but just what that begs the question what was the attraction what gave them the idea to cast him in a in a movie like that memoirs because i know it's I, I i never stopped talking when i ended up working at the video store i've told you this many years um memoirs was always in the comedy section and i used to get mad i'd walk around and i'd tell my manager i'm just not a comedy we can't have it in the comedy section i'm putting this into thriller or horror and they're like, no, Chevy Chase is on the cover. It's a comedy. We're keeping it in comedy. I'm like, uh, okay. You know, it's been a long time since I've read anything about that movie. Uh, so I could be incorrect. Because um, it's not one of the John Carpenter movies that I, I have done an, an immense amount of research on. But I want to say that that was like a Chevy Chase. Like it was his thing. 
like I want to say he he's in it because he might have gen he might have been the genesis of getting that movie made like he wanted to do it it's interesting because that becomes we covered Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein same era yeah and that was there was that resurgence in the early 90s of Wolf with Nicholson with um, Frankenstein De Niro Branagh uh, that Chase and and Carpenter for Invisible Man Bram Stoker's Dracula with uh, uh, Coppola 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 and I feel like there's probably another one there. I don't know if people, someone did the Blue Lagoon, Black Lagoon. So anyway, uh, we're down a wormhole. But I was just—it's just—he's—it's a very interesting character because he's not totally hateable. He's—they he, don't put him off like you. You're right. They don't. He's not a douche at the beginning. He's not because then you know by the end of it, then he's redeeming like, oh, he's a nice guy again. It's just that he—you're right. Once he gets to Vulcanvania, it is there is almost a class thing where. Yeah. Um, so the, as the movie goes, um, they get the, the other couple from from Brazil to get in their car. Um, the male actor in that, what's his face, um, uh, Taylor uh, Negron, I met on the street one day. I was crossing Sixth Avenue and I almost bumped into him. And I looked at him. He looked at me, and he knew I knew him, and I knew he I knew he knew me, or I knew I knew him. And then it took me like a half a day to kind of think about where I knew him from. And I was thinking he was the boyfriend in Christmas Vacation of what's your face from. Um, uh, Seinfeld, yeah. Uh, uh, but then I, when we watched Christmas Vacation, or I was like, the next, or the next time I watched Christmas Vacation, I was like, that's not him. And then I realized, oh, he's the boyfriend in Nothing But Trouble, that guy. But yeah. he he's part of a couple who are from Brazil. They get in the car with him uh, for whatever reason. What is it, Demi Moore? She is a le- lawyer. She has to get down to Atlantic City to to. You think she's trying to close a deal, but she's having an affair with the person she's also representing. I think so. She finds out who Chevy Chase is because he's kind of a big market, a business market person. He's an investment counselor. He's a financial publisher, he calls himself. He has this magazine called Thorns Weekly, which evidently is good stock tips because, like you just said, we learned that the, the, the doorman, he, learned, you know, he, he makes some money off of it. So at least Chevy Chase knows what he's talking about because there's a lot of people in the industry who don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Uh, and th- they use uh, Chevy Chase's car, this, this uh, BMW, to head down. She's going to drive Demi Moore down there in time so she can do whatever she needs to do. And I guess even though they don't know each other, I guess Chevy Chase is aware. It's very quick, the exposition, but it seems like he's aware of the deal that's going down and he wanted to, didn't know if he was going to go or if it's a, maybe it's a trade show or a convention down there. So Chevy Chase is like, I wasn't planning to go. And she's like, well, let me borrow your car. He's like, well, I didn't say I wasn't going to go. So something must be happening in AC yeah. that the business community is aware of. So... They hop in a car. Chevy Chase is driving with the two other people, the couple from Brazil. And on their way down the Jersey Turnpike, they get off because they want to have a picnic. Uh, and then they get through this country, and then they go through one of these one-horse towns, which is Vulcanvania, uh, one-road towns, which I love the billboard, which it has like a 50-zero billboard. And it's one of those, you know, got to wear your seatbelt, drive 55 if you don't. It's a shame, and it's like the... There's a car crash and the in the like the, the the trooper from the Eisenhower years is like holding like a baby crying, you know. So it's like the implication is that the, the parents died in the car crash because they were speeding. And Chevy Chase, he doesn't make a complete stop at a stop sign. He just kind of rolls through it, and that's what gets uh, John Candy's attention in this souped-up cop car, which is at least by that time ten years old. Uh, the Monaco, I think he's driving, and then it leads to this big car chase because they egg him on like. Uh, Chevy Chase, like you're in such a high-end BMW, you can get away. And 
he's like, yeah, sure I can. And they kind of talk him into it, uh, except Demi Moore. Demi Moore isn't like, she's like, I think this is a bad idea. And then Chevy, uh, and then John Candy says he's in such a souped-up cop car, he's able to keep on him. And this is where the chase leads him into Vulcanvania. So you're right. Once they, he encounters John Candy, he's kind of a dick. He's like, I don't care who you are. And I don't know if they make fun of his, his weight or whatever, but, yeah. you know. It leads it to like, you know, where he makes him follow him to 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 um, this uh, area where it's the uh, what do they call it? It's called the Valken Heiser, Heiser Salvage. Yeah, what is that? Is the name of the uh, uh, is the the grounds they go over and there's like a moat and this is all stuff where we, when we get into the expenses that they all built they built like a working drawbridge. And then there's two matte paintings that are prominent in the film. One is when you see them going over the drawbridge, you have the wide shot of the moat that you can see is going around the whole area. And then when they get into the salvage junkyard, you see this big 90-foot high building they made that is very reminiscent of like uh, Psycho's kind of a house, but it's kind of more supposed to be an old like church, or I'm sorry, old schoolhouse. And on it, it says Court and Schools from 1898. It's the building in, in Valkenvania. And that's the other map painting is you're seeing how wide the salvage yard is. It's almost reminiscent of like from Dust Till Dawn, that, that shot at the end when you see the reveal, yeah, all the yeah. cars there. Uh, and then that gets them there to the judge, and you meet Dan Aykroyd there. And Dan Aykroyd's this crazy judge who's, you know, is, uh, and then, like you said, Chevy Chase starts mouthing off to him, and that gets him in more trouble. He could have just, I don't know how good it would have went, but maybe they would have paid a fine or something and just been on their way. But Chevy Chase starts saying, like, I'm better than you, what the hell, or well, he doesn't say it like that exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think what, uh, you know, why I said the making of this movie I, I find very interesting is that, you know, um, as we pointed out, a hu- like, the expense to make this movie is kind of, seems crazy when you look at it uh, today. Warner Brothers uh, basically, you know, decides to go ahead with it. Um, they decide to give it the green light with Dan Aykroyd saying like, okay, we can't find a director, but I'll direct it. And they say, yeah, oh. I, we never finished that story where it's like, yeah, so he got, they cast everybody and then they green light it. And then that was what you were saying. It's like, they green light the movie. They don't have a director. So Aykroyd's like, shit, I'll direct it too. And they're like, okay, we're comfortable with you doing yeah, that. Well, you've then, never yeah. directed a movie, but all right. Um, sure. You're Dan yeah. Aykroyd. You've, you've had a bunch of hits. As we, as Dan as Dion pointed out, Aykroyd wanted to play the judge Vulcanheiser as well as the Chevy Chase character, but uh, Warner Brothers was like, "Well, what about putting Chevy Chase in that part?" And he said, "Okay." And uh, they also wanted John Candy in it, so he said, "Fine, we'll put John Candy in it." They uh, they give Aykroyd a budget of reportedly uh, forty million dollar budget to get started. They start production on May seventh of nineteen ninety in Los Angeles, so they build. You know, all these. They build it all. They build all these things on the Warner Brothers lot and in Warner Brothers sound stages. Junkyards, the the actual 90 foot facade of this building, all the interiors for this crazy. And it's not, they're not just making. That's the other thing. It's like all the the set design that um, Michael Lanteri did. Well, he's Spielberg's guy who did did Back to the Future 2 and 3, and he also did. um, Last Crusade. That's the thing is that like Aykroyd knows, okay, I'm a first time director. I'm going to be playing a part. He ends up playing two parts in the movie. Also, also ends up playing Bobo, which is one of like the mutant baby characters because they couldn't find anybody else to do it. So he says, since I'm the first, I would have did it. I'm a first time director. I'll uh, 
I'm going to surround myself by with some of like the best people. So he hires Dean Cundy, who has been appeared on this show many times uh, as director of photography. Of course, he did Halloween and The Thing and uh, so many great movies with and without John Carpenter uh, for production. Like Spielberg stuff. For production design, he ends up hiring William Sandl- Sandell, who uh, he's the one that does a lot of the set, the sets. Um, uh, and he had he was coming off of RoboCop and Total Recall, so that's insane as a production yeah. designer. Uh, for makeup effects, he hires uh, David Miller, who uh, had yeah. done Terminator, Dreamscape, and Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. And then as they get in, and the that thing, gives you an idea of where the uh, makeup comes from. How he, Freddy Krueger, with this, Dan, you know, Dan Aykroyd kind of has the same kind of look. And uh, this Michael Landell, guy, uh, Lanteri guy that Dion was talking about, he he worked with Spielberg, and he, he's a special effects supervisor. So even though uh, William Sandell is doing a lot of the set design in terms of uh, props and 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 all that stuff, uh, he brings in this guy Michael Lanteri who. Uh, he's the guy that ends up creating all of, like the me- the mechanisms that we're talking about. He's the one like that the set pieces are the. He the, ends the, up finding the, like the roller coaster, and he builds the table with the the train in it. Um, and so he starts. He builds like all the mechanical aspects of like the far out set pieces that Dan and I have been talking about this whole time about what one of the things that makes this movie kind of fascinating to watch. And the the other thing that you know, the, in the research that you do, we find repeatedly being said that, like, the crew loved Ackroyd. Like, he, apparently, like, the crew just loved him. They were, they would, you know, the, obviously you get certain directors where the crew has some animosity towards them. Or you hear all these stories about maybe first-time directors. The crew kind of tests the director by being kind of assholes to see if the director knows what they're doing. But Dan Aykroyd, apparently, and maybe it's from coming from sketch comedy and improvisation and all that, apparently he is the kind of director that would hear anybody's ideas. Like, any guy on set was like, you know what would be really cool? I had a, you know, my grandfather had a, 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 you know, a toy train, and it would bring the food out. And Dan Aykroyd's like, yeah, okay, let's do that. You know, he would hear yeah, all he these. Yeah, he would just—they're making these suggestions. Hear all these like these outlandish ideas and be like, "Yeah, that sounds cool. Let's do that." And and not blindly. Well, he'd turn them around. And he would he would he would pitch them to Warner. Warner would be like, "Sure." I mean, where they're like, "Oh, I guess." Well, you that's know. the other thing is that, um, the fact that Warner Brothers gave this guy who had never directed a movie before with clearly must have been a weird script to begin with just gave him kind of free reign you know people have blamed the fact that you know they were making two big movies at the time this was the smaller of the two big movies the other movie was bonfire of the vanities which were they were shooting in new york not in la and and apparently ended up being a huge flop yeah but apparently also had a lot of troubles going on during production and so they were kind of preoccupied with bonfire of the vanities so everything that dan Aykroyd was doing was just kind of sliding in under the radar I mean, even though because this was supposed to be the lesser known, smaller, like okay, sure, it's a little, the little comedy. Yeah, uh, Bonfire was the big, 
big release of that year. But it was a $40 million budget, which wasn't huge for 1990, but uh, a 91, but still a pretty big budget. It ends up going reportedly $5 million over budget. Yeah. And at some point, you know, they're using everything that the Warner Brothers studio has, like prop wise, in their department. And people are just telling them, like, you have to stop spending money <laughs> well that's the thing it's like you know with, with the sandel sets and then the the uh lanterry these gimmicks it's like you think about this is the era of practical stuff so they built all this stuff they had all the they they had all these cars and all these things you know and they had to find all this stuff and they had to have all these practical sets it's not like they like blue screened anything really for the most part and even when you look at the behind the scenes stuff of like the auto stone the stone hedge they call it auto hedge where it's the buses you, they look like uh old buses but then when you look at the behind the scenes they actually built those buses to look old so it's like they're fabricating all this stuff and they're fabricating like you said uh land terry bought a uh, oh, old roller coaster for 15 grand and they repurposed it to come out of the house which was part of the set and then inside the stuff with the movable judges uh uh, uh the thing and, and all of all the stuff uh, uh, you know on the bench and the, the it's so uh, you know the slide so it's like they're they're building all this and not only are they building they're not just what i was saying before is they're not just building regular sets they're building these like texas chainsaw massacre-esque sets where there's it's, there's a lot of set design involved where you got to make it look like an old rotting house and then there's all this it looks like a hoarder's you know uh dream from you know the from the turn of the century to like 1990 yeah all this practicality with you know toasters and, and radios and any kind of gadget you could find that they're putting in there so so there's just so much like crap that's littered in there and it's just like this thing should have won something for set design because it's just so much <laughs> story that's told that you're just supposed to just kind of absorb by just looking at stuff like like when they're in the attic and they're looking at all the license and they go by Hoffa's up there or they go by Nazi what's his face the um uh, the, the the rocket scientists you know for, uh yeah. you know all the all these people that the, so there's so there's this this huge implication of all these cars and what this is supposed to mean and all this stuff which plays into like the the uh the big twist at the end yeah. uh it's just it, it it's mind blowing the amount of time that's spent in there and all the stuff that they actually shelled out to make that just you know it's like they need like you said they're like you need to stop spending all this money or all this you know it seems easier today you could just draw it all where back then you'd have to move everything yeah. in and I mean, they would say that know. like the set designers and the prop guys had to go out and bought like every toaster in the la area so they could just like yeah. put them in a pile outside of the house. <laughs> Which is weird because that just means in the script it says there's a pile of toaster ovens, you know? So it's like then they have to go spend, you know, what, what are they spending, like five grand on toaster ovens or whatever? Or they're fine. Like they said that they, I forgot where, but they found some guy who had a barn, this elderly man on his farm who had all these old cars on it. So they like bought all the guy's surplus and they had to put it on trucks, bring it to the Warner set. And then they had to destroy him and various levels of, uh, make him decrepit. So it looks like they've been sitting in a junkyard. So it's like, they had to, they had to find all that stuff. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's the thing I find this stuff that we're talking about right now is the thing that I find most interesting about the making of it. You know, when we talked in the, at the beginning about, Things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, even Psycho, which was obviously like a very big budget, uh, 
you know, comparatively to other kinds of horror movies. But it was a universal picture by Alfred Hitchcock. You know, we talked about uh, even uh, Rocky yeah, Horror Picture days. Show or uh, Hills Have Eyes. You know, it's a concept that is probably written that way because it's a very low budget. You know, a lot of horror movie conventions and story of plots come out of the fact that you could do it on a low budget. Like, you know, yeah. Night of Living Dead or Evil Dead. Let's look one location. You know, we can shoot it all in one location. It'll save us money. But here's like Dan Aykroyd takes this idea that should be like a low budget, you know, independent horror movie comedy by way of plot, of, of, of concept of plot and makes this you know, art, you know, possibly $45 million, uh, like big budget movie. And then like, go, oh, that's fine because you have still like Deanna has been saying the whole time you had people that were stars at the still stars at this time. So it has star power behind it. But the fact that Warner brothers reads this script, let's, uh, Dan Aykroyd direct it like on a whim on like we can't find anybody else okay i'll do it <laughs> uh and then just kind of like leaves him alone for the for, which was it seems like obviously they must be getting reports of the kind of money he's spending we're hearing in the research that people are saying like you can't you need to stop the hemorrhaging you know of the money yeah. um and just lets him make this totally bizarre studio picture that i mean let's face it i don't care who's in it like really probably didn't ever have the chance of of being like a huge success you know what i mean like maybe maybe it could have well, made I mean, it maybe it could have made its it, budget back <laughs> is it not a good movie i mean what i mean because under my impression, I don't think it's hit yet, but I think this is now garnered as a cl- classic. I mean, I certainly now am I, I'm categorizing it as a cult classic of the rewatch. I told you I had a friend of mine that I work with that absolutely loves this. So I don't think this is, to me, it's not a, like, we've watched a lot worse movies, I feel like, on this podcast that we're like trying to like hold up to an esteem where it's like, this seems like... But the, but the weird it, thing is, those are movies that were more... You know, okay, maybe not No Holds Barred, but, you know, uh, those are movies that I feel like were better received. Yeah, and like, well, that's what I mean. I wonder, and really aren't that great. Um, I wonder why this, was it because maybe it was not bad marketing, but I wonder if it came out at a bad time? Like, the way what was I, it up against? I mean, here's the way, here's my theory of it, is that this movie didn't have a chance in hell of being like a box office hit. But it's the kind of movie that finds an audience in a way that before, you know, 1980, a movie couldn't find an audience because there wasn't really this advent of, like, home viewing of movies. You know, like, the, the VCR and video rentals changed the way people make movies and changed the way a movie could be received and how a movie could be successful and that's why you got a lot of movies that didn't even go to theaters, straight to video, you know, and it still happens, straight to streaming or whatever. Um, this movie found an audience because of VHS. You know what I mean? Like, this is the kind of movie that I can't imagine in what world they thought that this movie was going to be a financial success. 
in in the in theaters. But they didn't make. But I don't think they made it with the intention of like, oh, this will find an audience. And well, I don't know if it ever. It I don't know a... if it ever did find make its money back. Even in you know on a no. 40, on a reported forty five million dollar budget, it made like eight and a half million dollars reportedly. Okay, now you, you add like the fucking nine dollars you paid for the DVD. You know that stuff adds up after overtime. Sure, <laughs> sure, but um, but I don't know if there's somebody still checking that box. Okay, we sold another nothing but trouble DVD. Obviously, somebody's collecting the checks. I mean, people are they're happy yeah. to make the money. There's a record of it. I mean, I don't know if that's getting... They're not updating the eight and a half million saying, dollars. Like, you know, <laughs> so I don't line. know. Maybe they think that they're getting a new, quirky Beetlejuice, a Tim Burton kind of movie. They're looking at... Something like Pee Wee's Big Adventure, well, something look, like it was a weird, Batman just came out. You know it, what I mean? So they're know, like, if it was a bizarre time, and of course, there's bizarre times and other. I mean, you know, there's movies like there's some there's movies based on things like television shows where like you can say okay, like uh, H.R. Puff and stuff or the Banana Splits or whatever. Like that was a popular time. It's fucking weird as shit. Yeah. But, you know, it's some kind of psychedelic trip that for some reason kids were force-fed that shit in the late 60s and the 70s, and they, li- na, 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 na. <laughs> and yeah. they liked it, so they made a movie out of it. And okay, maybe that movie did well because there was a built-in audience for it. So obviously there are examples of that happening. But you get into like the 80s and the 90s, man, and of course some of that is happening in the same way of like they're trying to – to hop on the success of something like garbage pail kids they're like okay there's these trading cards and kids love them for some fucking reason and i do i still loved it to this goddamn day i'll fuck i would, sure. I well, would that was all that was a <laughs> answer out of the the regular uh uh cabbage patch game, yeah, that i know craze. but somebody so, was like let's take these trading cards and we'll make a fucking movie out of it and, it and is, i don't think that movie even saw a theater release oh right? I, I bet you it did I mean, I oh, don't know because I never, I've never to this day even seen it. Obviously, we, we haven't done it on the show yet, and but we've talked about it. It's been on the same list it. as nothing but trouble. Yeah, for uh, for, for years. Okay, so like, but like, it's one of those oddities. You're right. Yeah. Okay, but it's like okay, that's based on a, a thing that somebody had an Property. idea. Yeah. Like yeah. okay, let's do that. Uh, Mario Brothers, another example. Okay, it's a video game. Kids love Nintendo. Let's make Fuck that. It. We'll make a movie. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, they may be late with the idea, like a two years, three years too late. Yeah, but at least they have it right. Well, but, but this is know, just totally like, a spec script. These are all weird things, but it's like okay, you can see the logic of it. Yeah, you know, like okay, some businessman's like this is popular. Let's make a movie, but and those movies found audiences, you know, with kids in in video. You know what I mean, like. Oh, there's a whole bunch of shit like that. I mean, you could look at any of those video game movies, Double Dragon, you know, that. Or even around this is the time of, like, Tank Girl, which was, like, a, a, a comic book property that, like, we didn't grow up with. Yeah, a little, a little, <laughs> a couple years later, this is, well, you get into the, that's the era of Johnny Mnemonic. Like, it's like that. Yeah, you get, like, like mid-90s. Like, Johnny Mnemonic and then, like, the Judge Dredd. And, you know, but that's only, like, five years after this. I mean, it's not yeah. too long after this. Well, Judge Dredd is going for the comic, like, they're trying to look at comic properties. Yeah. I think this is, I think, I don't think, I, I think this falls under the the idea of that the the maybe he's looking to make this a lot darker than it turns out to be, which is the rumor that then they re-edit it. Yeah. But I think you look at like Leatherface, 
What's that movie? That's the what is that? The third Texas movie from the eighties. Yeah. And then you look at like Evil Dead Two, and how does Evil Dead Two do around eighty nine or so? Right. Yeah. That's but so. My only point with in comparing uh, this to all those kinds of movies is those were movies that yes, based on properties and comic books and all this stuff, but had that fucking nineties and late eighties weirdness to it. Yeah. And that was my only reason to compare them. It's like even Judge Dredd, which is a substantial amount of years after this, it's fucking weird, that movie. Oh, sure. You know, yeah. and there was just a, there was something in the air there in Hollywood where they were just making these weird movies. Uh, to your point, uh, I mean, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is probably the weirdest out of all yeah. of them. Uh, but that's like that's mid eighties, and then you get to the late eighties and early nineties, you get Leatherface. But uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, no, there's nothing, to, there's nothing to interrupt. So I, I wonder if they were just you know like I feel like say you take Judge Dredd, where they did a serious one a couple of years ago with Urban, which was really good in my opinion. Yeah, and and in the eight the nineties, they kind of make it comic. They throw Rob Schneider in there as comic relief because they don't they don't make it a straight. Like you know, I love I love that movie. The Sloan one. We've even talked about doing it on here. I mean, come on, Amanda Sante is amazing in that yeah. movie, and, and it's a fun I movie. Like it just fine. The, the, <laughs> I saw it. Yeah, the movies. you know what I mean. And so did I. And then you know the the ABC robots, freaking one of the awesome villains of all time, and and the whole set design again, and all that, the prosthetics, you know. But it suffers from. It seems like some of these these uh, studios don't have the 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 the, the balls or the, the whatever just to stick with it. And, you know, and, and like this movie, Nothing But Trouble, it's like, you know, whatever the cut Dan Aykroyd had, it wasn't like you hear that he had like a four-hour cut. It just was a lot more uh, gruesome, probably in the vein of uh, uh, Evil Dead 2, to make it a little more of a dark comedy. I mean, so it's like, so they're doing uh, Bonfire of the Bandities at the time, which is also of that area, have those kind of silly f- movies, that, and that ends up bombing, and they're not looking at this, but then when they do finally turn... F- their attention to this movie by the time this is either in post-production or whatever, they're like, what the hell do we have here? They take the movie, they recut it themselves, and then they put a new title on it and they put it out, and that ends up hurting the film. Yeah. And it's kind of like... Yeah, I was yeah. just going to say, I wonder if that... You know, they say that the, the stuff that they took out was were things like gore and stuff, and I wonder if it's a, it's a case of what we talked about when we did the first RoboCop, which is, like, the gore and stuff would have played up the comedy aspect of it like the outrageousness of what they were doing would have played up the comedy which would have made it a little the satire more, yeah would have, which have made it a little more acceptable whereas when we did robocop we talked about how um that, that went against it <laughs> yeah like it was you know they it made it more violent and horrific <laughs> yeah like it was gory but what happened was the studio ended up taking out like the over the topness of it that was like that made it more satire and almost outlandish and what happened yeah. is it just made it more brutal <laughs> so it's like the scene with the ed 209 when he shoots the guy at the beginning they they cut the two seconds out of him getting killing the guy so if they kept the the extreme of it all would have been like oh this is ridiculous it's it, it it's is kind of over the top almost yeah w- yeah where when they cut it and they make it quick it's almost very horrific it plays completely <laughs> you know it, it makes it almost like oh my god it's so great we're and i feel like here so there's scenes we we move right along i guess we could touch on some of the the what happens in the movie uh you know he keeps them for the night they get they go down whatever 
you know, and then you meet John Candy's the, his silent mute sister, who she's very funny in it. Uh, um, what's her name? Like Aldonia or something. Um, but they get the second people that come, Daniel Baldwin, who shows up with a bunch of like Italian guys who John Candy uh, turns over. They're doing drugs and all that stuff, and you get the. They're the example of his his capital punishment where he ends up killing them with the bone stripper. Uh, the bone stripper, it seems like that gore was kind of maybe cut down. I wonder if, you know, you see people going in, they, they get sent on this roller coaster that throws them on a conveyor belt right into this freaking uh, big monstrosity of a machine, which is this beautiful eye candy. If you've got the, the belts going with the engines and you have like the fire coming from the exhausts with the damn Yankee song, bone stripper, like heavy metal, like, you know, it's like almost... Um, uh, maximum overdrive kind of and these people get killed and then you see the bones getting spit out the other end of it i wonder if there was more you know maybe there were scenes of them getting i, I can't see actual scenes of them getting dismembered and killed but you know maybe there's a little more gore there yeah. to the end of it where when they get demi Moore out into the salvage yard she is taken by john candy's the the, the sister character is going to get killed but the the mutant babies grab her and she's what you see her playing cards in a jail in a, in a, in a kind of a cell and then the next minute she's out and it seems like they jump cut a lot of that where they have that machine come out near the end then suddenly she's there so i wonder if there's more that you, you know there's just they're they're cutting yeah. you know this or that out heads or tails the scenes one thing that totally flew over my head and i didn't realize this was even implied until we did research on the movie is that uh one of the things that we looked at research and uh, said that the people that die in the uh, bone stripper uh, roller coaster oh, yes. are what the hot dogs are made out of. And I, yeah, like, I totally didn't <laughs> land on me. Well, when I was little, I always that they do look gross. And then if you notice in close up, they're doing makeup. I think the, I think it's a clever pl- swap where in close up, they're making his, Dan Aykroyd's judge nose look like a penis head. Yeah. You know, so, but then I don't think that's always like that because when they're in the long shot, I don't feel like, but then when they go to a close-up of him eating a hot dog, yeah. it, you know, it looks like the head of a, of a penis and you're like, oh my God, it's like, you know, it's like, it's almost like Joe Camel suddenly, you know, so it's like yeah, yeah. those big sausages, it's kind of funny, but I, I like I like that implication of more that the meat's meat and a man's got to eat kind yeah, of like I just, hotel I, hell. And I'm you know, not that saying they should have impli- played that up a little the impli- more. I'm not saying the implication is not there. I just like it totally didn't land on me. I mean, clearly yeah. they're gross looking. Like they're loosely packed sausages. So you have like the skin of the hot dog kind of like they don't even look over cooked, the edges. gray. You know, and it's it's so it's like so that all that stuff is great. Uh, and. Um, you know, as the as the movie goes, they get stuck up in the attic. They're trying to get out of the house, and then it's, again, it's like stuff I remember from the theater when he gets stuck in the walls and he's watching Dan Aykroyd in his bedroom take the stuff off. You know, you kind of learn again. There's ex, you, you find out that he's supposed to be 106 years old. This judge, um, he went to World War One, and in World War One, he loses his I guess his his entire leg almost to the hip in, in combat in France. And while he's gone, his father or grandfather who's taking care of the property sells the oil rights uh, to some crazy, you know, to some oil baron in New York or whatever. And that's the reason why the whole land is depleted and it's left with these fissures or these these burning, you know, septic fumes because of what's going on underground because of the, the coal fire. So when he gets back and then there's also a, 
a, a newspaper article that Chevy Chase sees that I guess there's a mine disaster, and that's where Dan Aykroyd's character is then burnt, I guess, beyond recognition. So then that gives you these puzzle pieces that you put together. That's why he's wearing a wig. He's got a fake prosthetic nose because I always find that disgusting when he takes the nose off. Yeah, and he's and and, and you could see his you know you could see his skull and his teeth. Uh, it's it, terrifying to me. So then he's elderly. So he, then he looks old. They give him prosthetic hands and this kind of a thing. So um, you learn all this stuff by just looking at the set design or the set pieces or the the, the ex, uh, exposition of what he evidently is his his character and why he hates the oil people i mean it's it's these interesting little devices that i love to learn more of that's why i said this movie begs a prequel yeah to find out about all these people um it's and what his disdain is for that yeah i mean it's definitely for a guy that never has directed a movie before and clearly maybe had too much freedom during the production of it that's that's debatable but like it is you're right in that it's, it is like a fairly well-written script where it's interestingly told. You know, this exposition yeah. comes out in a cinematic way and yeah. not... And it's at, oozing with it. Yeah. And not... I mean, of course, there are lines of dialogue, but they're not like excessive monologues of like, this is what happened. You know, in that way it is. It's, it is very... Um, it's cleverly done in terms of a storytelling and the way it's the story is told and the, and the way the script plays out. And, and like I said, cinematically them walking around the room and seeing visually these, yeah. uh, even the, just like the licenses, you know, you get a sense of everything, like the, the, the horror that they're in store for is instantly yeah. kind of revealed in that scene. And the implication of like, you know, they said like the, a biker gang has gone missing and then they look and there looks like there's skeletons and it looks like bikers that are so that maybe they were stuck in the attic. Then they go down this, they find this escape to get out. And like, you know, the, the, once they're trapped up there, there's a safe that goes over the trap door so they can't get out again. And then they have to go this other way, which is down a slide, which is in between the walls. Um, and they, him and Demi Moore go down the slide and they go the wrong way. And he go she goes out, shoots out into the salvage yard outside the house he gets stuck in in the walls which is a hole where he sees dan Aykroyd taking his clothes off but there's all these bones there so it's like what's supposed to be implied of why all because when he falls out it's like there's hundreds of, of femurs and <laughs> and so you're like you kind of figure out how many people have been stuck there and what's so more of the implication that they're eating the people or you know, how long have they been there where he's got his, his bench set up where he's got buttons, he's got the organ buttons that are able to turn, he's got trap doors that lead to, like, the basement, or he's got another conveyor belt that leads outside to the bone stripper, the the, uh, the roller coaster ride. So he's these years of these things that he's, ha- he's, he's mechanically engineered at the house out of old parts, you know. Uh, it's just so fascinating that, all, you know, and, and all these little buttons he has that they they kind of justify the this does this or that does that you know so it's um it's really ingenious and then even the little lines are kind of funny like we're like when they're trying to get so the female john candy mute character gets t- takes a fancy to, to chevy chase and suddenly they want they, they're gonna marry her and like dan Aykroyd is trying to tell you know the scene where the judge is trying to tell him to marry her and he's like you know marry her you'll never have car trouble again it's like you know it's all these little funny yeah. Uh, jokes that just show up that just make the movie so weird and and uh, and then we get outside. Demi Moore is running around outside because she went down the slide the different way and she runs into this is where in the theater 
for me, it hit Bizarre Town, where suddenly there's these mutant... It's another level of, like, what the hell are these mutant babies? And um, we learn, like Blake said, that Ackroyd says he was having these dream nightmares of these mutant babies, and that's what he, he gets the idea to put them in the script. Fine, but it's like... Uh, what's the justification of, of <laughs> whose babies are they? They're they're the judge's grandkids, so that me- leads you to believe that it's either John Candy's kids or the mute girl's kids, which I don't think they are. But they're they're not allowed in the house. And I somebody said somewhere that that I guess that is there is a infant. That is there such a f- element as having an infant body? Yeah, I don't uh, know. You know, I mean, there very well could be. But also, I feel like John Candy and his sister are also the grandkids. Yeah, I don't because he says. John Candy, who I love, and in in this movie, I think he's he's amazing with what little he's doing. He's great as the cop. He's great as the sister, and it's just like another tribute to like such an early loss because he did JFK after this in a very small role in it, and then which is a serious role. He's in Cool Runnings, and he does a couple other comedies, and he dies suddenly. So, which is such a shame, but. You know, he doesn't he say in this like he's been staying at the compound since he was eight. Or, so you don't even know if he's the biological kin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would think he is. Uh, but then, you know, the, 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 the Rio couple who were able to escape uh, and they're able to get out. Who, they're very funny. To me, they could have been very cliched. But in this viewing, they come off as kind of very funny. Um, Fausto and his sister, because uh, they're supposed to be like she's a she's like the Brazilian uh, freaking uh, Miss America, Miss Brazil. Um, beauty queen or whatever they convince John Candy to hide him and then the end of the movie then you have another scene in the movie which is just cut in through the madness of John Candy packing his stuff listening to like maybe Hank Williams Jr. and he's packing his you know he was a marine he's very you know all his stuff and his bad he's very proud of his police it's his job as a cop by the book uh, which goes back to like Dan Aykroyd's affinity for Jack Webb and Dragnet the movie they did you know 10 years earlier or less than that with Tom Hanks yeah. um that's the last scene you see of John Candy's packing his stuff up until the end. They're in Brazil, you would assume. And he's got this big, huge tuxedo on, and he's now the head of security there. He's now, um, girlfriend is the, the Brazilian model sister. You know, yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. so, it's so great. Like, that's the little, the little end of, like, you, it's great. A lot of movies, you wouldn't see what would happen to him, you know, because of whatever reason, they would drop his character. So it's great you do get a... Uh, end to his character arc, which you don't really get to see all that much. Yeah. You know? I mean, clearly there's a it, lot of weird plot points and things that happen with the story, which I'm not sure how important it is to get into that, some of that stuff, especially because we've been talking about the movie for like two hours now. I mean, I think one thing that's worth noting is the cartoonish ending, which, yeah. like the final scene, which, you know, has a little bit of a twist at the end saying, and, uh, but like important, apparently, or reportedly or allegedly they just didn't have an ending for the movie and so that's something that they just kind of came up with which is uh you know ends <laughs> with Chevy Chase running through uh, his apartment wall which is very like a Tex Avery cartoon and you get the Warner Brothers that sound yeah. you know the beginning of the Mary Melodies kind of sound uh well they they end up escaping yeah. and they get out of there. They get on a train. Great scene. That's where I was saying that action scene where he, it looks like they're really doing the the the. Uh, f- there's a, I mean, there's a whole a lot of other interesting stuff that that are going on. The machine that John, the silent woman's trying to kill Demi Moore with to get him to come out because John Candy or Chevy Chase at that point is hiding, and then he grabs Demi Moore. They're in, they're able to escape. They get away. They get to maybe Philly or someplace. They get um. 
what's his name? They 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 have Raymond uh, J. Uh, Barney, who was also in Falling Down. He's the police chief. When we did our f- most controversial episode to date, our Falling Down episode, which we talk about in the taking of Pelham One Two Three, why it's so controversial. He shows up as like a, the head of the FBI and. Chevy Chase and What's-Her-Face are telling them what happened. So they bring all the cop and SWAT teams down to, to raid the place. They get there, and then the big reveal there suddenly is that, which was a surprise to me in the theater, is that they're in on it. They know who the judge is. And yeah. suddenly, to me, it's frightening. That's like the scariest point. I mean, it's silly, but it's the scariest point of the movie to me that they turn around and the 100 guys, SWAT, police of every ethnicity that are there are laughing like, hey, judge. And they're like, you know, we don't really... um condone what he does but he does it and we you know we 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 sign off we've been sending people here for years <laughs> so, so that's led to believe they're yeah. going to kill chevy chase and demi Moore, and then the whole place blows up because well, of well um, that you know that aspect of it. one that guy is the guy that uh from rapid fire the brandon lee movie that i love so much nice doing business <laughs> with you frank or whatever uh, it is and uh but that Brian aspect, doyle murray that aspect of the of that story is very Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and that, like I say, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And if we ever end up covering it on the on the show, I don't know. But one of the things I love, I think we will. One of the things that I think is so powerful about that movie is like how much of a genuine nightmare it is, which is like how hard Sally tries to run away from it. She always ends She's back. She's just looping back. Yeah, 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 back in the spider's web. Which yeah, is, she gets to the cast station. She thinks she's free because the old man is there. Yeah. Or the, and then finally the old man's part and he brings her back and look what your brother did to the door. So yeah. Yeah, I, I only bring up the neandering of this is because it is like a Tales from the Crypt ending where suddenly you laugh at it, but it, you're right. It's like a Texas... They're there and it's like, oh my God, everybody's <laughs> in on it. You know, you know they thought they're safe. They, they, they thought everything was going to be okay and now it's not. Um, yeah. And then they escape again because uh, because of the coal fire and destroys everything the- blows up. Yeah. And the whole place they see that they see the, the house actually collapse and the whole place just finally blows up and they think they're away and they get back to New York City and they're in his apartment or wherever they are. Yeah. And he's yeah. watching the news. His apartment. And this or is what Blake apartment. was just saying. Yeah. His apartment or her apartment. We don't know. But he's watching the news and she's gone to go get to wash off or whatever. And like take a shower. And they're like, it turns out that there's a whole bunch of you know, oil under, under all this. And then they're like, yeah. So because of the high grade fire of everything blowing up, it's made of crude oil. So that means the Ackroyd, the judge family is going to be, you know, it's, it's like five, five billion. They say something like 50 billion gallons of oil that they're going to get now. And then they find someone rubbaging a reporter through their thing, and they turn around. It's the judge character. Yeah. Like, excuse me, sir. What are you going to do now that the house, you know, now the town is, gone and destroyed he's like well because he married chevy chase off to his his granddaughter the uh aldona the uh john candy female character like well my son-in-law lives in new york and we're gonna go there <laughs> we're gonna go move in yes so that's the that's another surprise i remember from the theater like the the surprise ending where oh my god it's like he's not rid of them he still has his he holds up his id he has his license, so he has his address. He knows where he lives because John Candy collected all the IDs when, they, when he initially arrested him. Uh, and he's not rid of them. And, you know, and then there's begs a sequel. And that gives you, as you said, the, the cartoon ending where they didn't have an ending at that point. So they just have, which I think is a great ending, by the way. Yeah. Great, another great twist. You have the twist of everybody knowing that 
knowing the judge and then they get away because the place blows up but then now in the rubble he's still alive and he's like we're gonna go stay with the in-laws you know and or the you know the son-in-law and he has the id and, and then that's where chevy chase just runs through the wall and you get the yeah. which it know. is like at that point it's like what else it's like you talk, you know. I think we talked about it when we did Dawn of the Dead. It was like, well, what else can we do? And then somebody was like, you know, the only thing we don't have in this crazy movie is a pie fight. <laughs> so, you know, like I feel like Let's the only way, fight. like, how are we going to end this crazy thing? You like, we'll end it like a fucking Looney Tunes cartoon. It's like, okay, yeah. that's as good an ending as any for this wacky show that we've just created. Um, and then uh, I, the while we're still here, the only other aspect is to talk about that there is a scene where they're, when they're all stuck trying to get out, Demi Moore is stuck locked up with the with the mutant babies. Uh, they've cap- recaptured Chevy Chase, and they're going to marry off Chevy Chase. Uh, another car pulls up. It's a hearse. John Candy's, or it's the other girl who is from the Second City, because it was kind of like a semi-Second City reunion. The female share... Uh, deputy that's been with john candy yeah. she brings in the digital underground and it's they were huge at the time they were kind of a band that came out uh they had this huge song called the humpty dance with like the year before and they were kind of like an alternative hip-hop group of the era right around when gangster raps inception they were kind of like almost um uh parliament funkadelic of the 70s they were had a lot of um kind of uh influences from them of what they were doing uh at this time, and they were this big band that were that, that people the the lineup would change when they would put different albums out, and they show up in the song and they're they're on their way. I guess they're speeding, and the judge is like, you know, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're musicians, we're hip hop, and he's like, what's hip hop? And he's like, well, you got to play me a song. So they set the song, and suddenly there's this sequence of them playing singing, and you have all these people who people know because they were popular at the time, and then in in New York. Uh, uh, Yankees jersey you see Tupac Shakur is there and Tupac this is his first movie he wasn't really big at the time he was just coming up uh, as a hip-hop artist himself and he's guesting only on this song in the Digital Underground uh, uh, group and they have a music video that comes out the music video the song is very widely popular uh, Dan Aykroyd's in the music video uh, Daniel Baldwin who we just said who plays a very minor role in the movie he's in the video and then uh, it's one of these songs where uh, they ha- they use the set in the music video. They're like outside in the in the junkyard, and they're singing the song. And you have like Dan Aykroyd, like a lot of they're showing clips of the movie, and they're showing them in the video. And at the end of it, when they're when they're kind of uh, when the song's kind of playing itself out with the with the loop, you see other people showing up in the video, making cameos. You have um, Easy E and um, Dr. Dre when they were still part of. Um, NWA, they make a cameo saying all around the world, same song. And that's what Tupac is singing in the all around the world, same song in the movie. And in the longer song, he's got a little verse where he raps. Um, But this is instrumental where they say this song is supposedly because of the organ soloing in the song, which is attributed to Dan Aykroyd, which I don't know if he played it on the, on the album, but this is supposedly the first, uh, it's a, attributed to being the first hip-hop song that has uh, live instruments playing over sampled music where they're riffing and making solos. And it, it won a bunch of acclaim and stuff like that. And Tupac ends up the next year doing Juice, which is a big movie, which uh, uh, is near and dear in my heart. So uh, this is only in a year of each other. So he must have been filming at the same time. So, for, so it's instrumental because a lot of people were like, oh my gosh, this, you know, this band is showing up in here. And then it goes on next year, he blows up. And, and I don't know, 
you know, uh, Digital Underground's a kind of group that kind of came and went, and they've been touring for 20 or 30 years all around the world. Uh, so uh, right when this came out, it was a perfect element to have them use it in because they were the perfect band to have in. It brought in a whole other aspect of Fanage. Uh, there's a great music video and all that. So I think Ackroyd had his head on right of not just putting a blues band or somebody in. Um, say what you will about the movie suddenly stopping down like the Blues Brothers and having a musical sequence. But... Uh, if you were going to put that in, I think they were the right group to put in. So it's it's very funny that they just show up. And they also they become observers in the wedding, and they play the Tie the Knot song, you know, which is also on the soundtrack. Yeah. And uh, that's well, when Steve, you when know, he marries them off. something, you know, if you ever want to just date your movie <laughs> to a tie. Yeah, you throw a hip-hop song you, or, or you one of those. You whoever era. is popular at that time musically in the movie because – yeah. Music ch- fad changes. The reason why I feel like uh, that doesn't happen with the Blues Brothers is because the people that are in the movie are past their popularity. You know, they get a resurgence of popularity because of their appearance at the Blues Brothers, some of them. But, you know, it's like Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, James Brown, you know, even uh, Cab Calloway. Like, these are all people who they weren't popular per se they're mo they're highest but they're already part of americana yeah like they've they're already in like the zeitgeist of 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 r&b and popular music what happens when you put do this it do something like this in a movie which is you take the band that's popular at the time and you put them in it it just like it's a snapshot it of just that puts a st- like, it just puts a stamp on it like in the early 90s yeah. <laughs> 91 it's it'll like always uh, be that what's his face uh vanilla ice doing freaking you know, uh, ninja, yeah, ninja, pr- totally. Rap. Suddenly, you know, you're putting a, it's like having MC Hammer come out with his parish. Oh, 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 Pimba Power. You know, it's like, so I completely agree with you that it, that it does, it puts a big old, you know, Department of Motor Vehicle stamp on, you know, this is 1991. Which isn't necessarily uh, but it's just a bad thing. About it just, because it's, it, it, it goes in such a different way. Yeah. It's like, oh, wow. And then there's a video that came out and, that was the staying power for me at the time because I watched MTV as a kid, yo, MTV raps and stuff of this era. So I think a lot of the renewed interest I saw was because it was the song that had a hook and the song was popular at the time. Yeah. So it was there was a music video that got played at MTV and stuff like that where you might not get that today um, with having somebody, you know, movie just stopping down and having a musical sequence, sure. which is odd in itself usually, you know. So... Um, uh, yeah, this movie is just very weird. Um, I don't know if there's anything else to 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 to, to throw at it that we haven't talked about yet. I would just, oh, um, Michael Kamen, the score. Yeah, I was going to uh, say the only other thing I would add, and it's more of a trivial thing, is that uh, it was scored by Michael Kamen, who uh, unfortunately died fairly young, sometime maybe in the early sometime in the '90s or maybe the early 2000s. I'm not quite sure, but he was uh, known. F- often for classical music. I mean, he did, like, the score for uh, Highlander. Obviously, a lot of that's attributed to Queen, but Queen did, like, the rock aspects of it. Um, His score for Highlander, the classical stuff, is gorgeous. He did uh, uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which was huge, and a a huge score. score. He did... uh, The Dead Zone for Cronenberg. For some reason, that's one of the... That might be the only... That's one of the only movies that Cronenberg did where uh, Howard Shore didn't do the music, which there's actually a weird combination. Uh, Howard Shore is friends with Dan Aykroyd, and that's how Howard Shore got to work on Saturday Night Live, oddly enough, <laughs> back in the 70s. Uh, 
but uh but michael Kamen, uh he also i think did the um like the lethal weapon scores with clapton and we did, we did a lethal weapon a couple of years ago so uh michael Kamen was a big deal um and the fact that he came in and it's not necessarily a classical score uh at least for most of it it's a lot of there's a lot of rock tones and stuff but uh yeah that would be have a lot of they have a lot of like damn Yankees and people coming in. They're using a lot of stuff in sure. it. Um, there's the sequence where was in this reviewing most relevant or prevalent to me is when they're following John Candy back, and this is your first introduction to 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 um, uh, Valken, uh, Ville or Valken, um, Valkenvania, and there's this like blues guitar on in the background, and it's really good. So I didn't know if that was part of the Michael Kamen score, like that was just like the you know the non-diegetic music that they have in the background when you're getting to like when they're noticing all the set pieces of the yeah. uh, you know the the different stuff on the yard and the the, the the real kind of like industrial art that's been made when they get to the moat. I was like, oh, that's some really rocking electric guitar. You know? <laughs> so I was thinking, it's Dan Aykroyd meets Kamen, you know there. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know if that's if you look at the soundtrack, that's a song they put on because there's a lot of. If you look at it, there's a it's it's you know aside from Shock G and the Digital Underground, there's a you know there's a Ray Charles song in it. There's uh, Frankie Valley, Big Girls Don't Cry, of course. Uh, you get even the the Elwood Blues Review doing Atlantic City, so they throw themselves in there. Uh, you know, so there's it's a very eclectic um, uh, soundtrack that was released and I guess sell, sold pretty well. Um, and being little, I used to always love when I saw the movie and then in the trailers was when he takes the Hawaiian punch and he takes the gasoline neck and he puts it in. I always wanted to do that. Yeah, yeah. So I thought that was so cool. So that was always something <laughs> like when I saw that, I was like, oh, I remember I loved that joke when I yeah, was little, yeah. you know? So I, you know, I think everybody is great in it. You know, Demi Moore and John Candy and every, you know, even down to the Baldwin brother, you know, that, that has a brief appearance and stuff. Um, and what's his face, uh, Doyle Murray, who was just in Christmas Vacation, as the as the uh, the, evil, the mean boss. He's a, he has a very cameo at the end yeah. with um, Raymond Bar- uh, Barney. Uh, yeah, it's just it's just such an odd. So they finish the movie, and uh, what's his face? Uh, they're going to release it as Valkenvania. Uh, Dan Aykroyd does a cut, shows it to Warner. I guess they test screen it, and the test screening isn't very positive so warner takes it re-edits it to what we said turns it from an r to a pg-13 i think takes a lot of the gore out because they think that's going to get it not an r rating which like we just addressed takes out all of the satire and the comedic elements and then they at that time retitle it to nothing but trouble they have a screening for the crew which nobody attends except for the crew like no dan Aykroyd, none of the big people attend the producers because they're kind of mad about the recut uh, the crew loves it because they've been working on it for however how long, and then the movie comes out, and then it's just sad because the movie just really bombs. What did you say? Forty to forty-five million dollar budget. I think it only makes eight million yeah, in the yeah. theater, maybe. And uh, nobody likes it. The, the 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 all the critics you read about it are just. I mean, there's evidently a legendary story too, where Roger Ebert's in the theater trying to watch it, and people are talking. He actually walks over to the people, and being an asshole, he's like, "You need to talk louder so I can hear you, and not the." terrible movie we're watching so it's like people just hated the movie and i wonder if it was because it's the the sign of the times stuff is changing where the world is you know you're getting wayne's world you're getting these kind of comedies where this is kind of still that 80s kind of if this came out in 85 and in place of spies like us would we had loved it more or would it have done a lot better yeah three amigos you know 
So yeah, I mean, apparently it was scheduled to come out in Christmas of 1990, and then when they Warner Brothers finally saw it and were like, "Whoa, we can't. This is not going to make." Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> And partially, part of the reason why they wanted to cut it down to PG-13 was just because they wanted a chance to make their money back. They kind of realized that this movie was not going to do well. But at rated R, they, you're limiting your audience to can, aff- yeah. can go see it in the theater. So they cut it down to PG-13. It ends up coming out in February of uh, 91. So it comes out kind of like two two months later or so. Um, and Bonfile, the band of ban- Vanities goes into the place of that and that bombs yeah and uh i remember i've never that's another movie i've never seen but at the time uh it was big news because on the cover of my local paper the new haven register there's front page was a a a guy in a trench coat hidden his face and he's in a room and it's tom hanks had secretly come to yale to do some research for bonfile the bandities vanity so it was this big big news and everybody was like oh you know so i i'd always heard this big drum up to this big acclaim, like, it's coming out, it's going to be a great movie, and then I never saw it, it bombed. Yeah. And uh, I, to this day, I've never seen that. Bruce Willis is in it and some other people. And um, It's kind of like that movie that Danny DeVito directed with um, with uh, Kathleen Turner and Michael Douglas. Uh, where they're, War they're, of the Roses, is that the name? Yes, you know, that movie kind of bombed as well, but it's them trying to kill each other, husband and wife. And yeah. I think instead of divorce, they're going to kill each other or whatever. Uh, another odd of that movie, or what's the movie where... Danny DeVito's the other people's money is that what it's called? Where he's like the rich guy, you know what I mean? Maybe there's a couple of those weird, quirky, or the Bette Midler movie where she's like kidnapped with Judge Reinhold and they got masks. You know, they're like and they're hanging off a cliff with her and maybe <laughs> Shelley Long. Does this remember this? Yeah, 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 I know. I can picture you know, the cover. Like there's like really weird. These movies that came out at the time that just. A lot of people, for for all intents and purposes, forgot about. Um, I think we should also mention too that uh, they got what's his face to do a poster for it. Uh, Boris uh, Valyahu, am I saying that right? I don't know. Uh, he he did all the vacation posters. He done posters for like I think some of the Star Wars movies, Cue the Winged Serpent that Blake and I love. Uh, he done a rendition for this movie, a poster, and for some reason. Uh, Warner decided not to use his poster, and they st- still went with that. What you see, the floating heads above whatever the iconic poster now is yeah, of yeah. it, is what they decided to go with. Even though that you had this great guy Boris Valyahu um, doing it, and it's something where you look at the budget, the movie Warlock that came out like soon after made more money than this movie, and I just I don't know. To me, it's it's sometimes you could see it's weird. I don't mean to keep bringing up the same point, but it's like. Sometimes you could see why a movie does bad uh, in a sense where the script is terrible or the acting is terrible, where this you could see why it you could see in this movie why it did bad, but you can't see like you think see feel like it could have had an audience like there's all headlining actors the you have the best people in the industry doing the special effects, the makeup the the set design the music uh it only was made because you had the best people in Hollywood uh connected to it, but it just didn't. For whatever reason, and I wonder if it's just because of the changing times or if well, there's something else that think, was huge in the theater at the time. I think, you know, we, like talked, Secret of the Ooze. we talked a lot about, and I've mentioned the word, I've used the word weird a lot. And I think that is a perfect example of uh, like a, a reasoning. And when, I, and when I say it, let's, let me put it in a different way of when you get something that's so 
weird, you could also say that it's unique. And when you say that it's unique, you know, you're saying that it's very specific. And I think when you get something that's very specific, it means it's really only it only really appeals to us to a certain subset of an audience and i think yeah this is an example of that you know that's just it's not a movie that would have wide appeal um like a buckaroo bonsai or like a naked lunch like yeah so like-, like you know there, there are people that respond to it and i think it's the kind of movie that you just find on video or you find running on cable and you watch it and then and in that context you connect with it but to shell yeah. out four twenty five or whatever a movie cost back in you know nineteen ninety one um, to go and make an event to go to the movies, which it still kind of was hey. back then. Hey, I saw this in the theater. <laughs> no, I mean, but like, <laughs> yeah, 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 it doesn't. Sure. It's harder for for people to connect to it, and that. And we yeah. also don't know. I mean, we didn't do the research to find out what else came out in February fifteenth of nineteen ninety one. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I feel like it was overshadowed by something. That like, we're what were the movie? Something was big. What were the movies that it was competing against? Because that could also have a huge impact. Yeah, impact on it. of what it. Yeah, it's like Sorcerer coming out the same weekend as Star Wars. It's like there's something. I feel like uh, that you know we said Secret of the Ooze is out around there. Mario Brothers is out around there. Um, uh, what else is out around? Uh, Posse's out around that time. Young Guns Two's out around maybe around this time, 1990. Uh, Blaze of Glory, Bon Jovi. You know, uh, you got a lot of the you know music videos that have um, you know that are connected to uh, well, m- the movies. What, what about Terminator Two? <laughs> Terminator Two is is July of ninety one. Yeah, that's so that, July third. So that comes 91. out later. Um, yeah. Uh, what else is out ninety one? Uh, I feel what's bef- right before term. Dick Tracy's nineteen ninety. Uh, Ninja Turtles. I'm just thinking of what I was into. That's usually a barometer. Like fifth grade, I was Dirt, Dick Tracy. Uh, New Kids on the Block were big then. And then sixth grade is like Secret of the Ooze and, and more Ninja Turtles. And um, uh, when does Spawn come out? Is Spawn. Oh, like that's not until late. That's not until like 90, late 90s. 93 or so. No, that's like, uh, no, that's like Spawn. That's, that's like. You know, like 97, 96, 97. Really? I think, yeah. Okay. I was going to say, because I, I didn't think we were. Like, Blue, like, for example, I know you saw Blues Brothers 2000. I, to this day, have never seen Blues Brothers 2000 all the way through. But then when I looked to see what year Blues Brothers 2000 was, that's 1998. So that's crazy. So I've already, I already knew you by the time when you went to go see Blues <laughs> Brothers 2000. You know? And yeah. that's a movie that, again, flopped and, you know, for various reasons. But it had, like, a huge cast, and they were trying to reinvent that Blues Brothers mythos and Dan Aykroyd's helm in that again. You know, actually, nineteen. I'm looking at it. 1991 has a lot of really interesting movies come out. I mean, none of them around that time. None of them would be kind of movies that you know you would like. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern wasn't are dead or not necessarily. 1990, yeah, but yeah. it's but that's a movie that finds an audience. So yeah, I, I, but I that, wonder that, that's not necessarily a movie that would be the reason why no. this didn't uh, find find an audience at the time but i wonder if it's because people the studios were taking a chance doing these crazy movies and then you were the the zeitgeist was changing toward these you, you're gonna get in a, in a year or two you're getting the uh birth of the indie movie like what year's clerks you know yeah so you have that whole 90s boom of indie movies and quirky comedy so i wonder if it's just this is part of the transition where you're still trying to use the old lineup in a uh. newer movie Edward Scissorhands, you know, that came out around 
Christmas of 1990, so that could still be in theaters at that point. Yeah, and that's huge. That was huge when that came out. Uh, at oh. the time, Speed. I think Speed's maybe around this time. Uh, you know, you're getting uh, what year is maybe Demolition Man could be around this time as well. Getting Never Ending uh, Story Two comes out in February uh, of '91. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, what's F- the uh, FX Two? <sighs> we love FX Two. We love it a lot. Um, L.A. Or Story. even um, L.A. Story. Uh, that was, what's the uh, other that was one? Steve Martin, right? Yeah, Tango and Cash is what, 1990? Cl- what's Cliffhanger? Cliffhanger's 92? You anyway. know, because Stopping My Mom Will Shoot. Now it's just, he does us, the two now just us. Yeah. yeah, now we're just spitting out the last <laughs> bits of this podcast. Are just us completely <laughs> Yelling out titles of movies. Yeah. <laughs> But I feel like um, anyway. he did. He did the two comedies. Uh, he did Oscar in nineteen ninety. So there's, you know, those were big movies. Freaking, you know. Uh, so I wonder if people are going more to those big set piece Terminator twos, the uh, the Arnold movies of the time, and the uh, Sly movies of the time, the Seagal movies at the time. You know, Under Siege, Marked for Death. Those were big movies when they came out. So uh, Marked for Death, we already covered on this podcast this year. So I wonder if just people were in the wrong headspace anyway. for this. Yeah, so the world uh, may I'm, I'm never glad know. we did it, you know? Yes. The, how many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop? I never made it without biting ass, Mr. Owl. Mr. Owl. <laughs> James Mason's Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop. Anyway. One, two, three. If everybody's still, li- if anybody's still listening. Yeah. So I'm glad we covered this because it was kind of like, do you really want him? I was like, well, you know what? I feel like one, this movie needs some love. Two, I don't remember hating this movie. I remember really liking it when I saw it. And three, I have it on DVD. Yeah, yeah. And uh, hopefully this one day will get a Blu-ray release, which will be also widescreen. Maybe we can get some extras with it. And hell, if Dan Aykroyd has the time, maybe he can somehow get the, I would love to see the director's cut of this. That'd be freaking awesome. You know, that'd be a big event for like like uh, Blue Midnight or whatever one of the whatever they'll call those, you know, whatever Anchor Bay's turned into. Blue Underground? The Digital Underground can help release the Blue <laughs> Underground. <laughs> get, get a commentary by uh, Humpty and, yeah. uh, and Shock G and everybody. So anyway, and then one of the special features could be the music video. See, we've got the whole thing planned out. Commentary uh, by but, us. Yes. So, uh, this movie, Demi Moore, look at that white dress. Anyway. So, yes, thank you very much for listening, right? Uh, we hoped you liked our little special a couple of weeks ago, The Black Hole Revisited, the sidecast. Um, not everybody liked it, but enough people liked it. <laughs> Some people were disappointed, but, you know, you can't please yeah, everybody. Were, yeah, you know, what do you want for nothing? Um, so, uh, and then we're, we're going to be back in a couple of weeks. We got another special or two down the pike as well. They just poop out. While we're doing stuff, and then in a couple of weeks we'll have another all-new episode, um, which we might have already hinted at, but I don't want to say anything because sometimes when we do that, people may, you know, we used to have people who we would just name the year, and then we'd have someone mail us and say, "You're doing Terminator 2. and we're like, "How did he know?" <laughs> you know, so I don't know. Um, but uh, what else? Anything you have to talk about closing up the shop? Nope. Just uh, you know, check me out on. Uh What's it called? Social media at Scored to Death. And of course, uh, you can check out my book, Scored to Death Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers. It's available on Amazon from other book retailers uh, in both ebook and paperback. And you can buy a paperback for me directly at scoredtodeath.com. And of course, Dion Baia has uh, Blood in the Streets. 
Yeah, uh, you can get that on Amazon uh, or any place you get your books. You got um, paperback, ebook, audiobook, uh, something if you're looking for something to do around now, you know. Uh, give it a listen. Give or it a give it a read. If you DM Dion. He'll read it to you over the phone. I'll read it to you over the phone. I'll call you up long distance, Ma Bell, and be like, "Hello." It starts at the end by Dion Bayer. So uh, yeah, check those out. Check us out on social media. You can check me out on social media. You can check the show out on social media. Saturday night movie sleepovers. We got a website. You can check the website out. We've got we're on. Uh, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram. Um, one day we'll maybe be on YouTube if we get our act together and spend the time to put ourselves on there. And then, um, you know, we can send us suggestions, comments, questions, concerns. I saw we had somebody mes- messaging us actually during this recording, um, which was fun. So oh, that's always good, the, the fan interaction. And we'd like to thank everybody who's checked in on us uh, during this, these trying times. Right, people have been uh, messaging us and asking us how we're doing in New York, and you know we're hoping everyone else is doing okay. And uh, we like to say, you know, we're thinking about everybody with the, everything still ongoing, and our thoughts and prayers are with you if you've been affected by this, by losing a loved one during this epidemic, or if you yourself have been affected by this. So, um, you know, keep up all the stuff that we've been that everyone's been saying to do, and uh, we're trying to do our little part by making. Uh, a bunch of nonsense on the record so that you can listen to later on whenever you're doing stuff. Uh, bring a little laughter to the world, right, Mr. Blake? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in my woods, exactly. And we'll be back very soon for another... Uh, for, hey, you know what? What is this? This is May now, right? So, Jesus, we're going to be entering the summer months. Yeah. The 2020 summer movie extravaganza. I- Last year was the summer <laughs> of sequels. I know. We really haven't and given with all all that's going on. We haven't behind the little behind the 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 curve. We haven't really put a pole. whole lot of thought into what we're doing. Yeah. What because we've been we trying to know. flatten the curve. We haven't really thought much about. So we're behind the curve on our own. So uh, I think it'll be a fun, enjoyable. We have some tentative stuff. We've been meeting with a lot of groups and 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 taking. You know, well, we haven't been because we've been social distancing. But I mean, we've been polling and stuff. So I think we have a kind of a blueprint of well, a blueprint of what this summer is going to be like. But it's going to be a fun summer. So, uh, you know, we'll hope you enjoy it. And um, as always, we will see you very soon. Later. Later.